Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, General Conference Postmortem for April General Conference of 2021. Today's date is April 16th, 2021. General Conference is now in the can. And after it was over, I reached out to my friend Jonathan Streeter at Thinker of Thoughts and Stuff and asked him if he would commit with me to do five episodes, one episode on each of the sessions of this general conference, with the goal in mind of actually getting to all the talks given in general conference before the next general conference rolls around. It is a bit of an overwhelming project having to slog through these general conference talks. But I've done a few of these episodes before this with Jonathan Streeter, and we seem to make a good team. So on today's date, we met bright and early. In preparation, I listened to all the talks in General Conference and listened to them multiple times. And then when the transcripts of the talks were put up at the LDS Church website, I copied and pasted all of those talks into one document. I highlighted the aspects of those talks that I wanted to talk about and then made several notes and did some additional research, all of which will be reflected in this episode. Jonathan Streeter was good enough to do the work of getting the video and the audio of the General Conference talk. So if you want to actually see the speakers give their presentations, along with the faces of Jonathan Streeter and myself talking about them, you can go to Thinker of Thoughts and Stuff at YouTube. That's Jonathan Streeter's channel. You can watch this whole presentation there. If, however, you want to just listen to the audio, this is the place for you. But before we get to General Conference, I want to thank all of my listeners who have donated to Radio Free Mormon. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your support. And I would encourage all of you listeners who have not yet supported and donated to Radio Free Mormon to go to RadioFreeMormon.org, click on the Donate button, and make a monthly donation today. $10 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month, whatever you can afford. Your donations will keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. And now, on to General Conference Postmortem, April 2021, the Saturday morning session. Welcome to today's episode of Talk on Things and Stuff. Today we are going to try yet again to get through an entire general conference session and I am joined by my co-host and really the guy who's driving the show today and that is Radio Free Mormon. How are you doing today RFM? I am so good thank you. I'm driving this bus baby. <clears throat> Yeah, you know, these these uh, conferences are just, you know, packed full with all sorts of great and wonderful messaging that is in no way manipulative or contra contradicting each other. So, uh, you know, it's always fun to examine these things and, um, and, you know, I ran out of the energy to really dig into them the way that I could, but you've got this vast wealth of energy behind you. You're, you're doing, what, two shows a week now? It's crazy. But uh, I want to give you a chance to uh, get going. So should we dive right in or do you have anything you want to say to start with? You know, we better dive in because otherwise we're not going to have enough time. I will tell you that General Conference has long amazed me as something that is such a huge effort on the part of the church. 
and yeah. there's 10 hours a weekend, uh, twice a year, massive amounts of time, energy, and money being poured into this production. And I would just think that with all that time and energy going into it, they might have something interesting to say, or at least more often. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's fascinating because when we go through and, and clip out, I've been adding a few clips that I thought were particularly interesting to the YouTube channel. It's funny how there's an overlap between the clips that people who are within the church would find very inspiring and very special and people who are outside of the church or have left the church find actually very manipulative and um, and uh, it kind of exposing the church for what it is and, and perhaps we'll see some of those these days. But what we're gonna do is we're gonna try to get through the each session but we're gonna break it out a session at a time and today's session is the Saturday morning session and let's go to the first speaker. Who is the first one? Well, it's going to be our prophet, president, priest and king, uh, Russell M. Nelson. What? Russell does M. He Nelson. Get, does he get the King moniker too? I, I know Joseph got the King moniker. I mean, they they kind of stole that tripartite title from Christ. That was that was one of the big problems in the Nauvoo Expositor was that Joseph did that. But I didn't think the modern prophets did that. I think that that's something he shares with Wendy. It's like pillow talk. Oh, <laughs> call me King, Wendy. Call me King. Okay, you're terrible. All right. Uh, so let's see. Um, okay, well, you take take it away. You've gone through these and made some notes, so uh, let me know. Okay, so Where you're starting. Uh, I know you made some clips. Now, do you want, what right. do you want me to do? Do you want to start with the first well, clip? Well, let's start with the first clip. All right, we're going to bring this up. I've just done some timestamps, and we will have them and get going. So, For example, I know for sure that the Lord directs the affairs of his church. He said... I will show you that I'm able to do my own work. Often my counselors and I have watched through tear-brimmed eyes as he has interceded in extremely challenging circumstances after we had done our best and could do no more. We do indeed stand all amazed. Can you stop it right there for a second? John? Yeah. Thank you so much. You know, for a guy who reputedly has seen Jesus Christ and actually conversed with him, it sounds funny to hear him say, I know for sure that the Lord directs the affairs of his church. The for sure part kind of detracts from the certainty that I feel he's conveying. I know for sure that he does. But the main thing I wanted to talk about was uh, we watched through tear-brimmed eyes as he has interceded in extremely challenging circumstances. I'm not sure exactly what it is that he's talking about here. Where has the Lord interceded? We know about the extremely challenging circumstances. We know the Lord did not intercede with the pandemic. He did not turn it back in response to the two days of fasting and prayer, which by the way, is something that is supposed to really go down the memory hole. We're not gonna hear a lot of people talking about that in general conference for some reason. But it, this sounds very inspiring, and I would li really like to know what he's talking about. How has the Lord interceded such that it caused uh, President Nelson and his counselors to watch through tear-brimmed eyes and make them stand all amazed? He's not going to tell us, see. He's not going to actually tell us what it is the Lord does. Just that he's done it makes us cry. Everything's good. I think the Lord interceded by causing the members to forget about the two days of fasting and prayer and and cause the members not to look at the charts of the cases and see that if you map the level of the cases with the time points at which the two days of fasting and prayer happen it's almost like they had no effect at all on them 
sort of like if you map the curves with Kevin Copeland's cursing of COVID, there was no effect, which would lead you to think that, that perhaps those actions had nothing to do with it. But God can intercede by causing the members not to draw those points and say, wait a second, the power this guy claims to have is not real. Well, this is the stupor of thought we read about the Holy Ghost giving people. The Holy <laughs> is, the Ghost abs- is, still- is the absence of the Holy Ghost that gives the stupor of thought? No, I think it's the Holy Ghost. You don't get a stupor Wait. of thought without the Holy Ghost. No, he's he's in there stuporing my thought? Yes. Okay, well, that explains a whole lot now. All there right. Anything else, or should we keep going on this? Keep uh, going, please. All right, let's do it. I also understand better now what he meant when he said, Behold, I will hasten my work in its time. Over and over again I have rejoiced as he has directed and executed the hastening of his work, even during a global pandemic. Okay, can you hang on there for just a second? Because everything I've seen indicates the work is slowing substantially. Temples closing, missionaries being called home, or or now, uh, I guess, contacting from their, um, their apartments and not going outside to actually meet people during this global pandemic. Where is the Lord hastening his work during this time period? It sounds like we're getting a real, well, you know, it's like the football team that you're on is getting an absolute shellacking. You've got no hope of winning, but during halftime, the coach is coming in there and giving you this pep speech about you're the best, you can beat this team. <laughs> okay, so I've got two comments about it. Number one, I'm. let's just, let's pretend or let's imagine that possibly he's talking about compound interest. And so hastening the work and growing is the fact that the $130 billion continues to grow. And then even in the middle of a pandemic, it continues to grow because the church is invested in, you know, just the right things, including GameStop to make sure that, uh, you know, the the work, i.e., you know, the huge amount of money that they are sitting on continues to grow. That's the first thing. That's and the second... <laughs> the second thing... Don't come out my nose on that one. <laughs> the second thing is... Um, a little thing affectionately known as uh, Baghdad Bob. Have you ever heard of Baghdad Bob? No, but I've heard of Turban Durbin. <laughs> no. Let me see if I can find... So, in Baghdad... Let me see how I'm, I'm looking for it. So, um, Baghdad Bob was one of the generals in the um, Iraqi army. And let's see if I can find... Uh, oh, they've... Let's see, let's see. And and so, you know, this is like in the middle of the, the Gulf War, and there would be these news clips, I can't find it, you'll have to Google it, of this guy in this military uh, attire, and he's talking about how the American forces are, are on the run, they're, you know, we've almost routed them out. In the meantime, like, all the newscasts show that no, uh, the American forces are about to overtake your location. But he is just, like, totally brazenly misrepresenting everything, just like crazy, all the way up until the end. And um, you kind of get the sense there may be a little bit of that going on here as well, but uh, I'll leave that for, if I, if I can find a link, I'll put it in the, the comments, because Baghdad Bob was classic, because he kind of became a meme in and of himself. It's not a lie if you believe it. Yeah, exactly. And now we right. talk about the strength of the church. And by the way, the strength of the church, I've been a member of the church for 43 years now. Historically, the strength of the church has been the growth in membership. That's mm-hmm. what it's always been. 
The growth in membership shows the church is true, and the church is true because of the growth in membership. Stone cut out of the mountain without hands, rolling forth, filling the whole earth. But now yes. notice how he's going to change this in this next line. The strength of the church is not going to be in the membership numbers. Instead, he's going to reframe it to something else. Well, let's keep going. My dear brothers and sisters, the strength of the church lies in the efforts and ever-growing testimonies of its members. There you go. Yep, yeah. it's not in the num the numbers of the members anymore. Instead, it's in the efforts and their ever-growing testimonies. We may not have a whole lot of members anymore, but dang, mm -hmm. their efforts are something and their testimonies ever-growing. That's the strength. Well, and, the, and if you frame it that way, then the smaller the church gets, the stronger it gets because it becomes harder for the people who remain to continue to have that testimony. And, and the more that the problematic issues in church history that betray its claims to authority and legitimacy become widespread known because of the Internet, the more of a miracle it is. It's a miracle to have any members left at all, really. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, I said, well, it's going to get to be that point, um, <laughs> unless, unless they change the, the framework of membership. All right, let's see here. Um, I've got somebody saying that your audio is a little bit too low, but I don't know about that. My audio I can hear you just low? fine. I don't know. Okay. They, they're, we'll see. Okay, just, I don't know if there's anything you can do. There's a microphone. There's a little volume knob on your microphone, but don't yeah. get too hot on it. Uh-oh, this is really bad. I shouldn't have messed with it. Now it's going to fall apart on me. Okay, that's fine. Right there. Okay, All right, let's keep going. Up. Okay, keep going. Testimonies are best cultivated in the home. During this past year, many of you have dramatically increased the study of the gospel in your homes. I thank you. And your children will thank you. Okay, there we go. Now, the first thought was, during this past year, many of you have dramatically increased the study of the gospel in your homes. Well. I mean, really, what choice did we have? We're not going to church, so obviously we're going to be increasing study in the home. Also, did you notice how he, he snuck in the word cult into the sentence? What? It's sort of like the subliminal thing, right? Testimonies no. are best. He said it. Testimonies are oh. best cult-evaded in the home. That'll be good to clip the audio out to make fake sentences in the future. <laughs> I, I just love the part. It's like, and your children will thank you. You know, when I was young, if we ever had to stay home, like from state conference or something like that, and my parents were like, all right, we're, we're home from church, my heart would leap because it'd be like, yes, I could play Metroid. And then be like, but, but we're going to pull out the scriptures and the lesson manuals and read and study the gospel at home. Believe me, the children were not thanking the parents for that. <clears throat> no, but All they right, will thank them when they get older and realize how important it was. Well, on top of that, I mean, we're we're seeing a lot of people when they're locked at home, they're not having to go to meeting after meeting after meeting uh, to prepare to study to cram. And so they're letting themselves breathe a little bit, letting themselves let their minds unplug from the indoctrination. And in many cases, it's giving people a little bit of space to question things, to study, not to just study from official published sources, but to look at the critical work and see, is there anything to these people who seem to always have something to say about the church? And we regularly see in places like the ex-Mormon Reddit, people saying, you know, this pandemic opened my eyes. And um, that, that's not really covered here in his comments. No, it will be interesting to see how many people do go back to church after the restrictions are lifted. 
Yeah. I mean, already you shorten church from three hours to two hours and people are like, yeah, this is way better. We are not going back. Uh, but now you shorten it from two hours to nothing. <laughs> yeah. And we'll just see what it's like to, to go back. <clears throat> All right. All right. Now there's another, Should we go to the next timestamp or down to three twelve, three point one two? Right. You have that. Yeah, we're let me get it. We're around a bit. We're not going to actually listen to everything that the president has to say, which uh, is good. Believe me. Mm. All right, here we go. <clears throat> part of the gathering of Israel, and a very important part, is the charge for us as a people to be worthy and willing. Mm to help prepare the world for the second coming of the Lord. Okay, there we go. And here we have the second coming again. He beats this drum more than any president of the church I know of since Joseph Smith. That the really? second coming is it's coming soon. And uh, you notice earlier it talks about the hastening of the work. That's another thing that he keeps yeah. hitting on. The hastening yeah. of the work, which we understand is a sign that it's imminent. The work is hastening, even though it's actually slowing. He says it's hastening, and that means Jesus is coming right around the corner. And once again, he talks about the gathering of Israel. This is another signature phrase of his. Yeah. And mainly, the gathering of Israel in his lexicon means anything and everything other than the gathering of Israel. He uses it as this uh, phrase that covers, here it is, uh, to be worthy and willing to help prepare the world. That's the gathering of Israel. And once again, I need to point out that the gathering of Israel historically in the LDS church means a literal gathering of Israel. Mm. The members of the church gathering to a central location, i.e. Zion, i.e. the New Jerusalem, i.e. Jackson County. And in fact, right. it's still in our Articles of Faith. I don't know if President Nelson is aware of that. But it's still in our Articles of Faith that we believe in the literal gathering of Israel. Right. It uses the word literal in the <laughs> Article of Faith. But he will use it. And other leaders and speakers will pick up on it and they will use it to talk about oh, it's temple work, it's missionary work, it's uh, everything except for actually gathering together right. in one location. And he's extended it to be on both sides of the veil. So he's incorporated now this metaphysical world into it that's even double metaphor or whatever. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that before. That It does really make a point of saying the literal gathering of Israel. And you know he's doing it at that point because even in Joseph Smith's time, there were people who were seeing it as something squishy or metaphorical. And they're like, no, 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 this is literal. Uh, and that should carry to today. Um, well, it but, should because actually we sort of haven't dealt with it. We sort of yeah. started saying in the 1950s or 60s that we were establishing a presence kind of throughout the world in sufficient mm -hmm. numbers. We didn't need everybody to gather together, which is interesting yeah. because we don't need everybody to gather together anymore, even though that's what it's supposed to be all about. That's one of the main cornerstones of Mormonism in Joseph Smith's time and in the scriptures. But now we're to gather to our own stakes, which means yeah. we gather by not gathering. We gather well, by I, remaining dispersed. Yeah. Well, the thing is, though, if you ever bring this up to an apologist, it'll be like, well, you know about that Adam on Diamond thing. At some point, there will be a gathering right there. The church has already bought the land. And uh, so maybe that will be the gathering, the literal gathering. Oh, let me be an apologist for you, because, Jonathan, how do we know that it hasn't already happened? What? What? Why would you know about it, Mr. Anti-Mormon? You would know. Of course, I wouldn't know either, because I'm not in that inner group. <laughs> But it could have happened. It could have happened. 
that's true. I mean, when you live in a church that has secret doctrine that's kept from the world, such as the second anointing, then who's to say that there's not some super secret doctrine that the brethren themselves have cooked up that they can then in their own inner circles have? That's the whole problem with having secret doctrines is that you don't know how high up the rabbit hole goes because it's kept from you. And you see this in Scientology. You see it in any other groups. Um, that's just kind of like one more facet to the reason. Like if you're joining a group, one of the things, like the huge red flag is secret doctrine, secret ceremonies, because that means there's things going on that you wouldn't know about. Right. But we don't want to belabor the points too much because we got to get through some more talks. And this is just his short introduction, which is only about five minutes long. So let's keep going. Things you wouldn't understand, things you couldn't understand, things you shouldn't understand. <laughs> okay, Pee Wee. I'm a loader daddy. As we listen to the message... Oh. That have been we can, we, we, oh, stop, stop, stop. Let's stop. Okay, okay, okay. okay, okay, okay. Can we just go to Dieter Uthdorf? <laughs> Dieter Uthdorf. Is yeah, let's do it. And he comes up, the very first paragraph of his talk, which is God Among Us, or God Among Us in mm -hmm. English. God Among Us, his first paragraph is a huge, huge sobriquet to President oh, Nelson. Yeah. So... Uh, it's really hard in these days of COVID where we have all found solace where we can to not hear the title of this talk and immediately assume that he, that Elder Uchtdorf is sus. And you probably won't know what that means because you're a boomer, but I have young children. So there's a game called Among Us, and when you are sus, you are kicked out. At any rate, uh -oh. here we go. <laughs> God has spoken through his servants, the prophets. This morning... We have had the privilege uh, to hear the prophet of God speak to all the world. We love you, President Nelson, and I encourage everyone everywhere to study and heed your words. There you go. My dear brothers and sisters. That's in it. Yeah. But I'll tell you, uh, first off, sobriquet, I misused it. So not only do I not know what sus means, apparently I don't even know what sobriquet means. I meant a bouquet. A bouquet to uh, <laughs> President Nelson signed Love Dieter, because we obviously know that there may have been a bit of a falling out, a bit of a rift between these two when Dieter Uchtdorf got kicked out of the first presidency upon uh, yeah. President Nelson's ascension to the throne. But now he's gonna make it really clear that he is a company man, and we've had the privilege to hear the prophet of God speak to all the world, we love you, President Nelson. I think he actually threw up a little bit in the back of his throat when he was saying that. Look at his face when he's doing this. We love you, President Nelson. And I encourage everyone everywhere to study and heed your words. Now, here's the thing. At this point, Difficult times. Hold on, sorry. Keep going. Times. He's okay. But uh, <laughs> President Nelson just said a few things. But he's also going to talk in the Sunday morning session for Easter morning where he talks about lazy yeah. learners and all those things. The yeah. problem here is this. I know that uh, all the apostles have to support the president of the church, and they always have to call him beloved. That seems to be part of yeah. the, the title, and say how much they love him. But when you do that, what you're doing is you're signing on to support everything that he says. And so even if Dieter Uchtdorf doesn't actually say the stuff about Lazy Learner, he has now endorsed it with this kind of language, saying this huh. is a prophet of God speaking to the world. And so have all the other apostles. They all have to endorse everything that President Nelson said by their um, talking about him as a prophet. Yeah, and this is one of those issues where, you know, when you're in the church, you you use the fact that your leader speaks for God as like a really positive thing. And 
as I journeyed out and I started examining more closely some of the stuff in church history and even in wider religious history where this idea that a man could speak for God is really kind of like a really red flag scary thing that other religions like as soon as some religion claims to speak for God there's there's a lot of controversy about that and a lot of that is because of the rhetorical and manipulative power of saying that you speak for God because you know if one person is making a case based on the merits of the argument his own uh, moral persuasion then that's one thing and it's open to debate and it's open to criticism and you don't necessarily have to accept that a binding upon your conscience but if a man claims to speak for God in what he does then suddenly it totally changes how you are supposed to receive that and if you reject it then there's this psychological thing where if you revere God and this is in your paradigm of godliness then you're rejecting God by, by rejecting this man. And just to hear these men continue to say this is the mouthpiece for God and these men speak for God reminds me of, you know, that kind of really manipulative aspect of Mormonism right at the center of it all. Yeah. Can we skip down to 632? Uh, let's see. 632. I had 247 queued up, but I will go to 6... 32. Let me. I marked too many things in this outline, so I just want to skip so we hit the main things and have if time we, for everything. No, if we repent. No, yes, no problemo. Here we go. Repent. Mistakes do not disqualify us. They are part of our progress. We are all infants compared to the beings of glory and grandeur we are designed to become. No mortal being advances from crawling to walking to running without frequent stumbles, bumps, and bruises. That is how we learn. Okay, hang on a second. If so this is all good as far as it goes because it talks about the fact we're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. This is a step away from what is frequently considered to be the toxic perfectionism mm -hmm. of Mormonism, um, which he seems to be trying to combat. But now, having made that first statement, he's going to go right back to the same old trope about toxic perfectionism that is the problem in the first place. So saying, yeah, we're, we're kids, we're like kids, we're like babies, we're not going to walk immediately, we're going to fall down and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. now comes the guilt trip. Yeah. Okay, let's see. We earnestly keep practicing, always striving to keep God's commandments and committing our efforts to repenting, enduring, and applying what we learn. Line upon line, we will gather light into our souls. And through, and though we may not fully comprehend our full potential now, we know that when the Savior shall appear, we will see his countenance in us and shall see him as he is. What a glorious promise. There you yep. go. So there it is. And I don't know if you're hearing it the same way that I am, but it seems like there is a mixed message. Yeah, we understand you don't have to be perfect now, but on the other hand, you have to be perfect now. And you have to keep trying. You're gonna you may fall, but you've gotta keep trying. You gotta get up, you've gotta uh, repent, endure and apply what we learn and if we do this and we keep practicing and committing our efforts to doing it then we will see the savior when he comes we shall see him as he is interestingly he doesn't include the part about for we shall be like him mm -hmm. but that's well, part of that 
Yeah. The, um, you know, when you go out and examine other religious groups that use manipulation to keep people bound to them, you start to understand that these messages that are inherently contradicting, such as nobody's perfect, but we have to be perfect. And it's, you know, perfection is something that you must always be striving for. We know you're going to fail and everything. Uh, that is a, it's a sort of double bind where there's no way for you to actually uh, be integrated and whole as a person. There's always something wrong and broken about you that you have to have. So there's two sides of it. The, the more glorious that you can depict that final state of being, then the more power it has for you as the broken person to want to strive to be there. So all of this really pious, beautiful language, all of the glory of what waits for us in the future, if we can endure to the end, all of that is part of the effectiveness of this type of psychological manipulation. But, you know, no matter what religious group that you go into, that whole thing of, you know, there's there's something that you should aspire for, you can never achieve it, you're inherently broken, you've got to do more of the group things in order to try to fix yourself, oh, by the way, but the, you'll never really get there, and there's just over the horizon is that peace of mind that you're looking for, is that sense of wholeness and well-being. You, you're not going to get it now, but it's always in the future. And and we just see this done, I think, more skillfully when Dieter Uchtdorf does it, and he tends to be more gentler, he rules with a softer hand, and um, and I think that's why people are a little more eager to listen to him than some of the other fire and brimstone-ish people. Right, if they taught a plan of salvation where we could actually achieve it in this mm -hmm. life, then I think to a substantial degree they would lose power yeah. over us. We can never ever actually be able to do what it is and everything that we need to do, and that's why we continue to need them. And think about a worldview where you see yourself as constantly broken, always falling short, always having to depend on this external thing in order to be seen as whole. It's a very gloomy outlook. And so what do we have to do? We have to rebrand this whole thing because it's kind of it's kind of a bummer. Let's call it something we, we you know, it's the constant uh, pursuit of happiness but never really getting there. So let's call it the plan of happiness. That way, it's great branding. And you're going to overlook the fact that you feel kind of depressed and hopeless a lot of the time, but you can never really say that. You got to show up with a smile on your face, and even though you're, you know, you realize that you're never going to get there. It's just, it's one of these things. Once you step away from the paradigm of the church and look back on your mindset during that time frame, after you've had a time to heal and to realize that a lot of the messaging about your personal brokenness is a form of manipulation, and you don't have to internalize and accept it then you can start to see yourself as whole and you look back on those times and you're like, I had no idea the emotional and psychological weight that I was just, I never knew anything without it. It's the air that you breathe. Yeah. And we could go on a lot more about this, but of course, time is of the essence. Yes. I want to go to this timestamp 759 because I thought this was interesting. He sort of shifts here. And what I hear him saying is an apologetic for the Book of Mormon and specifically for Third Nephi and more specifically for Third Nephi chapters 12 through 14, which is when Jesus comes all the way over to America to give him the Sermon on the Mount to the Nephites. Oh, right? yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that's obviously, that's a huge uh, issue, a chestnut problem for the Book of Mormon. And I hear him addressing that in these comments. So he doesn't say, hey, here's a problem. Let me try and address it. You'll hear mm -hmm. what I'm saying now. All right. I often wondered what would Jesus teach and do 
If he were among us today, after the resurrection, Jesus Christ fulfilled his promise to visit his other sheep. The Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, speaks of such an appearance to the people on the American continent. We have this precious record as a tangible witness of the Savior's work. The people of the Book of Mormon lived on the other side of the globe. Their histories, cultures, and political climates were vastly different from the people Jesus taught during his mortal ministry. And yet, he taught them many of the same things he taught in the Holy Land. Why would he do that? The Savior always teaches timeless truths. They apply to people of every age and in any circumstance. There you go. And he also presents the information in the exact same way that the 16th century King James translators presented using the same cultural references and the same anachronisms. He always does it in the exact same order. <laughs> yeah, he does. Oh, man, that's good. Um, and, you know, he actually sets up the problem even better than I hear most people setting up the problem. Why would he teach these people when their histories, cultures, and political climates were vastly different? from the people <laughs> Jesus taught during his mortal ministry. Well, you set up the problem excellently. I'm not sure your answer satisfies no, it, the problem. It, it absolutely doesn't. He sets up the problem specifically addressing, like, there's a one point in the thing where he talks about, like, Raqqa or turning over to the council or something, which is a specific reference to something that was unique to Jesus' time in Jerusalem in the King James Bible. But... Uh, to find it in the Book of Mormon in this place where they don't have the same, you know, religious political structure, it's like a total anachronism and outlier. Um, yeah, that's that's a problem. It's a, it, there's more consistency uh, between the the sermon on or the sermon on the mount in the Bible and the Book of Mormon than there is between the different versions of the King of the first vision, and that's a problem. <laughs> Excellently put. So let's see here. Can you go to timestamp 951? Um, and yeah. actually, let me see here. Um, uh, I'm not sure that we even need to go to that. Let me see here. Because uh, basically he's going to say there's the Book of Mormon that has Jesus' words. He's going to say there's the Doctrine and Covenants that has Jesus' words. And, um, and now we've got, um, oh, what would Jesus Christ say if he came to your ward? And actually, I didn't even put the timestamp on that. <laughs> Do you have that? I'm just going to say, see. I like him. Okay. No, no, I can find it. I can find it. I can find it. Oh, I just... can. Okay, hold on. Let's see here. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Here's it. What would Jesus that Christ... Let's take this a step further. Okay, further. I'll use further. Hold on. Suppose here. Jesus came to your ward, to your branch, or to your home today. All right, it's what at 1140. It's at 1140. All right, and uh, here we go. I know you're just loving it. Okay, I think, I have I think to, we're starting to get into the groove. You did good. All right, I have to go to uh, God Among Us, Dieter Uchtdorf. For some reason, my screen like uh, unshared. I'm adding to the screen. I could be done with it by now. Can I just continue? No, it's we got to do it. He would see. Let us take this a step further. Good job. Suppose Jesus came to your ward to your branch or to your home today. What would that be like? 
he would see right into your heart. Outward appearances would lose their importance. He would know you as you are. He would know your heart's desires. The meek and the humble he would lift. The sick he would heal. The doubting he would infuse with faith and courage to believe. He would teach us to open our hearts to God and reach out to others. He would there you go. That, that's plenty. That's plenty. Uh, I'm glad that at least if he were here, if he actually showed up, he would heal the sick. Well, yeah, but, you know, he would probably warn them beforehand. Mm, do you have faith not to be healed? Because that's like a higher level of faith. I know, uh, but at least if he showed up. You know, he'd be healing the sick, at least according to Elder Uchtdorf. I like to think that's true because it doesn't seem like anybody else is doing it. No. In the LDS church. Uh, he says the doubting. Now, this is interesting because remember, Elder Uchtdorf is the one for whom that entire report was specifically written. Uh, I think it was uh, funded with uh, or organized and um, collected the information by John DeLynn and others to present to him about people who are doubting in the church and why they're leaving, mm. what their issues are. So he comes back to the doubting, the doubting. He would infuse with faith and courage to believe. And I thought, or maybe if Jesus showed up, he would just answer their freaking questions. You know, uh, yeah. if you have doubts, it's because you got a question. Can you just answer the question? Why does it have to be infusing them with faith and courage to believe? You know, if you just answer the questions in a reasonable manner, then they're not problems anymore. Yeah. This just reminds me of my childhood, uh, you know, where it's like if, if Christ showed up, he would know, he could read your mind. And I remember those times, like as a teenage boy, you know, you're thinking, like, if Christ showed up, he'd be like, I know, I know you're reading my mind, let me explain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, uh, he goes on about a bunch of other things, and I put a bunch of timestamps that are not important. Unfortunately, Dieter Uchtdorf has gotten to this place where he goes on and on about really nothing. He, he, he yeah. looks good, he sounds good, but when you start sifting through what it is he's saying, there's just a lot of fluff there and a lot of air and a lot of adjectives and a lot of adverbs. He talks about how wunderbar everything is and how unimaginable uh, things are. But he yeah. really, really doesn't get into a lot of meat. It's more just he thinks everything is so fantastic and he wants to convey that and he does, but there's really nothing else there, at least yeah. nothing that we have time for. Now, the second talk, the second full talk, is by one of the two ladies who was able and allowed to talk in general conference in April 2021. That's Joy Jones. She seems to be and very primary. popular. Yeah, that's her right there. That's All she right, let me, let me bring this up make sure that we can get to it and did i no i didn't close the wrong thing here we go all right let's she gave a talk called essential conversations and i know that you uh found a lot that was interesting yeah. in this talk yeah i mean anytime any of these high demand religions start directing their indoctrination towards children that's when kind of a lot of the the pleasantness and veneer comes off and you can see it for what it is but let's keep going all right. He trusts us to value, respect, and protect them as children of God. That means we never harm them physically, verbally, or emotionally in any way, even when tensions and pressures run high. Instead, we value children, and we do all we can to combat the evils of abuse. Their care is primary to us, 
as it is to him. Okay, so now this part, she starts off, I think, on a very good note, talking about we don't abuse kids, we don't physically, verbally, or emotionally abuse them in any way, no matter what the situations are, we value the children. We believe the children are the future, right? So yes. this is good, but it's gonna stand in stark contrast to an example that she gives later on in the talk yeah. involving the Vietnam War. But now she gives a little story, which is mildly humorous, like most of my jokes, I think. Um, a little story here, which really gets at the idea of what it is she's talking about and how it is that what we need to do with our children, though we don't want to abuse them, we want to make sure that we indoctrinate them to keep them fully in the church so they don't fall out when they get older. Yeah, okay. One young mother and father sat at their kitchen table reviewing their day. From down the hall, they heard a thud. The mother asked, what was that? Then they heard a soft cry coming from their four-year-old son's bedroom. They rushed down the hall. There he was, lying on the floor next to his bed. The mother picked up the little boy and asked him what had happened. He said, I fell out of bed. She said, why did you fall out of bed? He shrugged and said, I don't know. I guess I just didn't get far enough in. It is about this getting far enough in that I would like to speak this morning. It is our privilege and responsibility to help children get far enough in to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we cannot begin too soon. Okay, so there's the main point of the talk. To take children when they are susceptible to being taught, also known as indoctrinated, and use yeah. that time to get them far enough into the church that they won't leave when they become teenagers and why is this an important talk? Well, because more and more teenagers and young adults are leaving the church. So we have to increase our efforts to indoctrinate them thoroughly enough when they're four years old in order to keep that from happening later on. Yeah. Uh, there's almost no need to comment about it. It's just blatantly open and obvious what it is. Any of these high demand groups put a lot of focus on children because it, it, you know when you try to attack when you try to approach people who already have a sense of identity and a worldview outside of the religious indoctrination, it's a harder mountain to climb to get them there. But when you have children who grow up breathing that, that air and have no sense of identity, no sense of worldview outside of the closed uh, circle of logic that is the indoctrination of the group, then it is harder for them to leave. And not only that, if they do eventually leave, it's harder for them to recalibrate into a wider society. It's a, it's a longer and more difficult journey for them on the way out. And in some cases fraught with more dangers because they don't have some of the normal social barriers of appropriate behavior that normal people growing up would have. Um, <clears throat> all right, do you wanna to go to 242 on this one? No, I wanna skip through this because what I wanna do is just summarize it. Because okay. what he talks about is we need to have conversations with our children. We need to have role playing with our children about uh, standing up for gospel principles, about standing up for gospel ideas and beliefs when they're challenged by maybe a teacher or a friend or somebody else who's outside the church so that they yeah. will be able to withstand in the evil day. So they go through all that. And then I really want to go to that Vietnam War story which is a close okay. personal friend. And my timestamp starts before that. My timestamp starts at 5.50, but uh, it may be around 6.30 or okay. 6.50. I can find it. Open. A close personal friend. I'm sorry, I'm making this really hard on you. I know, I apologize. Well, you know, bef right before she goes into that, she goes into the... Um, 
she doesn't say so that we can withstand the fiery darts of life or whatever. She says the wicked. And she frames that entire thing that all of the things your children are going to be exposed to, including doubts or criticisms about the church, come from the fiery darts of the wicked. And so she's already making it so that any of your loved ones, your children or whatever, that leave the church that want to share with you the reasons that they left the church, they are now in this category of the wicked. And that was uh, disappointing to hear it framed that way. And then right after she made that point, she went into this story that I think is one of the most biggest punches in the talk, which is this Vietnam. Uh, parable. A close personal friend learned this crucial lesson as an 18-year-old. He enlisted in the United States military during the conflict between the United States and Vietnam. He was assigned to basic training in the infantry to become a foot soldier. He explained that the training was grueling. He described his drill instructor as cruel and inhumane. One particular day, his squad was dressed in full battle gear, hiking in sweltering heat. The drill instructor suddenly shouted orders to drop to the ground and not move. Can I just jump the in instructor here? Because I think yeah. we'll all be able to keep track of the, the train of the talk. She's really going to belabor the point. Uh, I think drill instructors are supposed to be cruel and inhumane. That's part of their job description. Yeah. Okay. Just so I throw that in it. there. Okay. Even the slightest motion. Any movement would result in serious consequences later on. The squad suffered for more than two hours in the heat with growing anger and resentment toward their leader. Many months later, our friend found himself leading his squad through the jungles of Vietnam. This was real, not just training. Shots began to ring from high in the surrounding trees. The entire squad immediately dropped to the ground. What was the enemy looking for? Movement. Any motion at all would draw fire. My friend said that as he laid sweating and motionless on the jungle floor waiting for dark for several long hours, his thoughts reflected back on basic training. He remembered his intense dislike for his drill instructor. Now, he felt intense gratitude for what he had taught him and how he had prepared him for this critical situation. The drill instructor had wisely equipped our friend and his squad with the ability to know what to do when the battle was raging. He had, in effect, saved our friend's life. Okay, can we stop there? Because that's the end. I mean, we'll go on in a second. But here's yeah. the story, right? Um, I'm She's describing the end where, you know, the uh, the guy, the private, finally realizes that his drill instructor was teaching him lessons that were important for him, even though he hated him at the time. It's like the closing yeah. scenes of an officer and a gentleman or something with Lewis Gossett Jr., right? So that's all good, and I think that's great. But it's very interesting. There's a strange juxtaposition here with children falling out of bed who's four years old and I didn't get all the way in and training them and teaching them and... We don't abuse them, right? We'd never abuse a child. But now all of a sudden we're, we're using this metaphor, which seems to be in stark contrast to that, at least to me. What do you think? No, I, there's, this is, this one really kind of struck me as it's just n not a healthy message. So first of all, she characterizes this thing of badness that you have to subject someone to 
in order to prepare them as cruel and inhumane. And the whole point of this whole talk is to take something that you would perceive as cruel and inhumane and show you that it's for your own good. And so, you know, the whole story here is, and she actually makes this point that she and her husband had to be like a drill instructor, i.e. cruel and inhumane to their children. And so she starts out by saying, we don't abuse our kids. And, and if you just bracket abuse as physical abuse or sexual abuse, then yeah, that's fine. But there are other forms of abuse that are psychologically damaging, that have negative outcomes in terms of a person's overall well-being that are in the realm of psychological and emotional abuse. And what she's doing here is laying out a justification for any hyper-religious parent to impose things that you know may be seen as psychologically abusive to their children and to feel justified because they can say well one of these days you're going to thank me because this is saving your spiritual life in the future president nelson even said your children will thank you in his opening address but now here in this next part she will mm-hmm. take that vietnam war story in the drill instructor and she will liken it to teaching children at home How can we do the same for our children spiritually? Long before they enter the battlefield of life, how can we more fully strive to teach, fortify, and prepare them? How can we invite them to get far enough in? Wouldn't we rather have them sweat in the safe learning environment of the home than bleed on the battlefields of life? I like her half cry as she says that. Yeah. Well, wouldn't we? I mean, doesn't it make absolute sense? We would want them to sweat in the safe learning environment of the home, then bleed on the battlefields of life, which, of course, the metaphor is obvious. We would rather uh, have them sweat in being inculcated in the gospel and in the church and in activity and in faithfulness than to grow up and bleed on the battlefields of life by going inactive, losing faith, leaving the church. Yeah, and the ironic thing about all this is that in keeping children in the closed environment, in the strict indoctrination of the church, you actually don't keep them prepared for much of reality and the real world outside of the closed bubble of Mormonism. And that's why a lot of people, once they go out into the wild world, end up you know, running into all sorts of difficulties. Um, let's finish this sentence, then. There is one other part of her talk that I think we need to do. As I look back, there were times when my husband and I felt like drill instructors in our earnestness to help our children live the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we never abused them. Yeah. Um, Okay, so there was one part here that for me was, um, let's see, I think it's one that uh, where she talks about indoctrination and uses life or de- okay yeah actually it is it's coming up at timestamp 10 um let's do this you may have had this on your schedule but we're gonna do it anyway alma taught us to prepare the minds of the children we are preparing the rising generation to be the future defenders of the faith to understand that they are free to act for themselves to choose the way of everlasting death or the way of eternal life. That statement right there, 
So first of all, she acknowledges that what we're doing is shaping their mind. You know, we're we're in, indoctrinating their minds, and that's the whole goal of all of this. And and you know, to be fair, parents do have to try to teach the principles and to convey their own values onto their children. That's completely legitimate. But then there's this distinct contrast between coercion and free agency that she just like totally glosses over in the statement that they're free to act for themselves. They can choose everlasting death or eternal life. It's like, gosh, Tim, Timmy, uh, you're free to choose baptism if you'd like, Timmy. I mean, do you want to rot in hell forever? Or do you want to have eternal life? It's like, okay, no, no, you, 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 don't get the, you don't get the concept here between coercion and free agency. Well, it's because we don't have free agency. We have moral agency. All right, anyway. Crucifixion to the left, freedom to the right. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll take want. freedom. <laughs> oh, all right, go ahead. I like crucifixion, please. <laughs> But uh, you're absolutely right. It's ridiculous. You're free to you're free to choose, you know, eternal life or eternal death. Um, but uh, what shocked me when I heard it wasn't so much that I guess probably because I've become inured to it. But that she's given her whole talk about how we've got to get those kids and stick them in the bed and keep them in the yeah. bed so good that they don't fall out. And talking about the Vietnam War and all this drill sergeant stuff. And then she says, we're preparing these kids to understand that they are free to act for themselves. <laughs> and this is just, it just came into stark contrast. One of these, these uh, tensions that there exists in Mormonism, and I think tension is probably a nice word for it, which is, you know, you, you're indoctrinated the heck out of. Some people call yeah. it brainwashing. That may be too much. I don't know. But definitely indoctrination because mm -hmm. we want to keep you in the church. We want to keep you going along the covenant path, right? But, we, but we'll also talk about free agency all day long, as if yeah. it exists within this framework of we're going to make sure that you do what it is that we think you should be doing. Yeah. Uh, every time I hear Bednar or everyone, you know, say, talk about free agency and moral agency, it's just like spraying Febreze all into the air so that people can't actually realize the crap that is before you, which is that this is a completely coercive, manipulative uh, indoctrination type concept. And, and that's, you know, it's, once you see it for what it is, you can't really look away. It's like a mafia person, you know, coming up to be like, hey, you know, you could choose to pay the money or not. I mean, you're going to choose this gun in your face or you're going to choose another day? in the business. Hey, what do you think? It's like, okay. <laughs> all, anyway, right. all right. Is there anything else in her talk? I just wanted to make sure we cover that thing. Yes. There is nichts, nichts left in the talk. So all teaching right. in the Savior's way is by Jan Newman. Now, Jan, I think, is a, a man's name. So I think it's Elder Newman. Okay. You know something? Uh, what's that? Yeah, he's second counselor in the Sunday School Presidency. They say Jan E. Newman. They don't say Elder Newman. But okay, anyway. Uh, exceptional teachers, blah, blah, blah. Emulate the Savior. Okay, timestamp 240. Because we always like right. somebody talk about how we have to emulate the Savior, who was the master teacher. First and foremost, take it upon yourself to learn all you can about the master teacher himself. How did he show love for others? What did they feel when he taught? What did he teach? What were his expectations of those he taught? After you explore questions like these, evaluate and adjust your way of teaching to be more like his. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm always interested by this penchant 
that LDS people have, and maybe other religions too, to talk about Jesus in anything he did, he was the best, Jerry, the best. He knew it. If he's teaching, he's the master teacher. Nobody could teach better than Jesus could. If we're talking yeah. about him as a leader, which we talk about in the LDS church, he's the mm-hmm. best leader ever. You know, nobody could be a better leader. We need to lead like Jesus. He's the master healer. He's everything. And I remember getting back from my mission and being in Austin, Texas at the young adults single ward there. And the, um, the elders quorum president, uh, he was a good guy. And uh, he told me one day, I don't know why, how this came up, but he says, you know, do you think that, um, do you think Jesus could play the trombone? Because I don't think Jesus could play the trombone. <laughs> and I, it's like, what are you talking about, the trombone? But I think uh, I realized later that what he's talking about is, you know, just because Jesus is like uh, the Savior doesn't mean he can do everything the best. Or maybe he can't do some things at all, playing the trombone. Why does he have to be the master teacher? I mean, if he was the, really a master teacher, why wasn't he more clear about things? Why are there hundreds mm-hmm. of churches based on his teachings? If he's yeah. a master teacher, at least in the way that LDS people think of it, which is you're going to teach something clearly and get it into their hearts so that they will learn, listen, follow, right? Uh, yeah. He doesn't seem to really be a master teacher. Isn't it okay if he's just, um, you know, a really, really good guy for the Son of God? Yeah. I think what we're seeing here is a little bit of, um, there are several different names for cultic groups. Um, some of them are um, totalistic groups. So I want to focus on that, the totalist aspect of it. So when you hear people talk about totalism, generally they're talking about religious paradigms. And what they what they mean by totalism is that the, the group seems to have an all-encompassing worldview and, and it's able to define the extremes of every aspect of your existence. And what we're really referring to, and, and once you realize this, you start to look for it around you, is something called utopianism. And that is that you can think of something that is good, and it doesn't have to be in the religious realm, it can be in any realm. When you think of something that is good, and you can say there's something out there that is the best of the best, and you use that then as leverage to get people to do what you want to do, to believe what you want to do, uh, because you can always point to this thing that doesn't actually exist, but it represents the highest ideal of anything. And you lose sight of the fact that you can never actually achieve it, or, or it's it's something that is unachievable, it's completely outside of the realm of reality, but because it takes things that we all think are good and, and puts them there as a carrot to dangle in front of you, it has a great deal of persuasive and manipulative power. Now, this exists in the political realm. You know, the m- Marxists... Uh, ideology when you read Karl Marx and what he wants to do there's this like future state of perfection of the the socialist society um, after the communist revolution and the proletariat and everything else you know that's a utopianism that then drives people to act and believe politically in the here and now in the religious realm in Scientology you've got this state of clear and the levels beyond clear it's a utopian ideal that they then utilize to get people to do what they want to do and to some extent you can take the person of Christ 
used as this utopian ideal. And when you look at the harmful, dangerous religions that use the Christian paradigm, they use Christ as leverage for that. Now, that's not the only way that Christ can be used because there are still Christian paradigms out there that allow people not to, uh, you know, to have a degree of agency and autonomy within themselves, but still see Christ as an aspirational figure. But I think in Mormonism in general, we use Christ um, as a stand-in for the church because he doesn't say, you know, study Christ, study what he taught. And if he ever contradicts what we teach now, then you should probably go with Christ because he's a better teacher. It doesn't ever say that. It's like, if there's ever any contradiction, go with what we say because Mormon Christ trumps any other Christ. Um, and you see that just even when the church says there's nothing more important than you can be doing in your life today than preparing for the second coming. That's another utopian leverage type thing because you've got this church ideal that there's nothing in your life that could ever be more important than it. And so that's where they kind of spring that lever on you. And that's my diatribe on that one. All Very right. good. Very good. So now he talks about the Come Follow Me manual, that home study, uh, home-based study, <laughs> home-based <laughs> what church supported uh, study manual. But here's what he says. I compare it to Come Follow Me. I compare it to the angel who helped Nephi learn about Jesus Christ by saying, look, like that angel, Come Follow Me invites us to look in the scriptures and the words of the modern day prophets in order to find the savior and hear him. Now this was the next thing, this next line. Like Nephi, we will be personally tutored by the Spirit while reading and pondering the Word of God. Now, Nephi is actually taken in a vision, and the Spirit appears to him and is showing him this vision and saying, look at this, look at this, and see this, and see all these wonderful things that are happening. And Nephi learns all this stuff through vision. But what um, the speaker here does is he compares us studying the church manual, Come Follow Me, to this vision by Nephi, and saying that if we study this Come Follow Me manual, we'll be like Nephi, uh, personally tutored by the Spirit while reading and pondering the Word of God. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know, ex except the Spirit won't really appear to us and show us a vision and the interpretation of it. But other than that, it's just like Nephi. Which made me think of the one funny scene in the movie, The Muppets Take Manhattan. Do you have okay. that? I do. I went and found a good. Exactly like it, except for the fact it's nothing like it. Okay, let me get it. It's. I'm almost here. All right. And the thing I knew that's so you impressive were... to me is that when I explained this to you on the phone, you not only knew the scene, you could quote it to me and continue quoting the scene to the end. <laughs> I, I grew up on the Muppets. You had to give me a break under this. All right, let's see. Here in the ad game. Oh, what do you advertise? Ocean breeze soap. Hmm, I never heard of that. We know. <laughs> the truth is, Phil, our jobs are on the line. Oh, here, sit down. Oh, yes. Hmm. We've been working all night on a new slogan. Tell us if you like it. Uh, ocean breeze soap for people who don't want to stink. Hmm. What do you think? Be frank, Phil. I don't like it. You don't? Oh! oh. Well, how Here's about ocean breeze soap? It's just like taking an ocean cruise, only there's no boat and you don't actually go anywhere. <laughs> Seems a bit long. That's the one. That's the one. Ocean breeze soap. It's just like taking an ocean cruise, only there's no boat and you don't really go anywhere. That's, that's what studying Come Follow Me is. It's just like Nephi being tutored by the spirit, except there's no spirit and you don't really see any vision. And you're not really getting tutored. <laughs> 
Why is it everybody in that ad agency sounds like Kermit? I don't understand that. <laughs> well, he did fit in there quite well. Okay. Oh um, all right. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, let's all have a moment of silence for where the Muppets are today. Where are they? They're, are I don't they? know, in, in Crapsville. Like, is, uh, they should have just stayed with Muppets tonight with Bobo the Bear and Pepe the, pra- the Prawn. Okay, anyway, let's keep going. I'm not the shrimp. I'm a king prawn. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay, now, can we just go to t- timestamp 9.00? I know I'm skipping another one. But, no, that's uh, okay. Let's do it. We are at the halfway mark, and we've got a cruise. We've got an ocean All right. Bird. ...themselves. President Nelson taught, if you have sincere questions about the gospel or the church... As you choose to let God prevail, you will be led to find and understand the absolute eternal truths that will guide your life and help you stay firmly on the covenant path. There you go. Okay, so now he's just quoting President Nelson. But everybody quotes President Nelson, and President Nelson is actually getting some catchphrases into the common uh, vernacular. One of them is, choose to let God prevail, right? It's like... um, uh, TV shows where you have certain characters with catchphrases like uh, you got Bart Simpson, um, uh, Cowabunga, mm-hmm. and other things like that. I think he has more than one catchphrase. Um, but there's one, choose to let God prevail. And you will let, uh, somewhere, uh, stay the on the covenant path. path. On the covenant path. That's what I wanted to talk about here because I actually did some research on this, John. Hmm. And you'll be interested to know, and I hope everybody right. else will be. Because this phrase now, the covenant path, gets repeated so much that honestly it's it's difficult to hear it after a while it's like if you hear a song the same song over and over again you start to get sick of the song i'm starting to get sick of this phrase but covenant path is something that now is so firmly associated with president nelson that it was easy for me to think that he's the guy who came up with it in the first place but actually au contraire he's not the guy who came up with it in the first place he borrowed it from somebody else. I went and I looked at that uh, LDS General Conference Corpus yes. website and I typed in Covenant Path and I did this a while ago but finally I get a chance to use it. Believe it or not, the usage of the word covenant has skyrocketed in Gen Con, that's General Conference, Gen Con, since mm. Elder Nelson became president. It was used three times in the 2000s, that's that decade, 106 times in the 2010s, right? Woo-hoo. Okay. And now in the 2020s, by the way, we've had three general conferences in the 2020s, right? Mm-hmm. 51 times. Hmm. So 106 times in the entire preceding decade, 51 times in the three general, in, in a year and a half, basically, of the 2020s. But in doing this research, okay, uh, I found, he's not the one to originate this expression, I already said this. Guess who used it first? It wasn't even who? a guy, it was a woman. Hmm. It was Elaine Dalton. To Elaine Dalton goes the honor and distinction of first using the phrase covenant path in 2007. That's when she used it. After that, it got picked up by D. Todd Christofferson in 2009. And then after that, there's all these other people who end up uh, using it. Let me see here if I can even read this. Well. Uh, I'm not even going to go through all this, but there's a ton of people who end up using it before it gets picked up by President Nelson after he becomes president. And now it's used by everybody and their dog when speaking in general conference. 
So I just thought that was interesting that this, it's not contrary to my expectation, something that President Nelson originated, but that he actually took it from other people and it originated with Elaine Dalton. I thought she should get some attribution for that and perhaps a small royalty. Yeah. Well, let's talk about it for a second, because we've got at least one commenter that says the covenant path. What the heck of that? It drives me crazy. Um, so um, the, the power of the covenant path is you may not realize it if you're new to Mormonism, but when you covenant in Mormonism, you are making a promise to God. God is making a promise to you. And as long as you do what you're supposed to do, God is going to do what he's supposed to do. And so... Right. With this statement of the covenant path, uh, he's now kind of made reminded people that when you enter into the waters of baptism, there is a covenant. So for people who are children and before they go to the temple, they are bound to this covenant that they have. Then when you go into the temple, there are a number of covenants that you make that uh, there's some implicit, you know, kind of blood oath type stuff that's still there, which we could talk about a different time, but you're, you're basically swearing your life and all that you have and all that you will have to the building up of the kingdom to doing the things that the church expects of you. We know that the brethren in the church that then interface with people in political office and everything are not unaccustomed to reminding people of their covenants. And all of these things are just to show that there's a psychological power in making, verbalizing a promise and a commitment to something so that if you later step away and say, I don't believe this anymore, I'm not going to do what you tell me, then people can look at you and point the finger at you and say, you're breaking your word. You promised. And even within your own self, because you want to see yourself as having integrity and living up to your word, it makes it harder to, to break away because you're like, well, I promise these things. And it really takes some effort to realize that when you're, you know, inculcated into believing that something is real and fusing your identity with it by making these covenants, that once you just just and realize that those things are fake and they're made up and they're not real, that you're not bound to those things. And nobody can criticize you as not having integrity and not being a whole person for going back on what they would say as your word. But the church doesn't do that. They continue to frame this as you breaking your covenants. And we'll see this in even when the church is trying to be good and trying to help people deal with people in their life who are no longer in the church, they'll say, you know, like, if your loved one has decided to break their covenants, reach out to them with love. It's like, no, 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 you don't understand. You're still framing this as though they are the breakers of the covenant when it's not like that at all. It's you realize that this covenant is a manipulation and this whole idea that it's a path. Now it's a, a, a space that you occupy, occupy in a direction you're supposed to head and you're not supposed to choose other things because you have to stay in this choice. That is a paradigm that cults love to grab onto. So in Scientology, there is this thing called the bridge to total freedom. And it's the same thing where this it's a metaphor for a path you're supposed to stay on if you are a good person. And in every way you are are making commitments and in Scientology you sign if you enter their Sea Org you sign the billion year contract and for people who get out of that group people who stay in that criticize them will remind them you signed a contract you made a, a commitment that you reneged on you are therefore dirty and impure in our eyes and you cannot leave with dignity and right. so all of this is loaded. Every time he says covenant path, there's a whole amount of psychological baggage that you really have to step back and understand so you can see the power of it and, and, and see it for what it is. Right. I, I, 
I have not signed a, a billion-year contract. I'm hoping at some point to sign a billion-dollar oh. contract. <laughs> no, no, but, in Mormonism, we're like billion years. We sign for eternity, baby. You're like a billion years is like nothing. That's nothing. <clears throat> you guys got nothing on us. Um, that's right. And also, I mean, these covenants we make them at baptism, even though we maybe don't really know about it, especially if we're eight. But then you go to the temple and it gets laid on heavy because every covenant you make, you swear before God, angels, and these witnesses at this altar that you will do all these things that you talked about, which end up being, you know, there's some things that are positive, moral things, right? Yeah. But they go hand in hand and lockstep with the obedience, fealty, and consecration of everything that we have, will have, and our time, our talents. I mean, mm -hmm. I think those are the words to... Yeah. The building up of the kingdom of God, which is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and it's all sealed. It's all sealed with that great scene. If if you got Michael Ballam, you got the best one, which is like if these people do not live up to these covenants made in this temple this day, they will be in my power. And it's like that threatening, you know, thing. So that, so now all the people who go to this is like if they see their family members leave, it's like oh, they're in Satan's power now. They're Michael Ballam's power. Ooh, what well, hand. we all we all were, you know, to some extent. He is he's spellbinding. He's amazing. Yes, he put the Lou in Lucifer. I'm not sure what that means, but uh, anyway. So we uh, we've got to keep going. Oh, let's go to Hearts Knit Together by Gary Stevenson, uh, just okay. so we can pass over it because this is. I mean, here's the deal: when you're going to talk about something as bland and as obvious as we should be nice to other people. Why do they have to tell a story that takes forever to talk about it, right? He talks about this scientific test from the 1970s with a group of rabbits. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's just like, it's so boring. It's a classic case of how to tell a boring story about a boring subject, which we would all agree is important to be nice to people, right? But some yeah. things are so obvious that really, do we have to hear a whole story about rabbits just to get there? What I found interesting was timestamp 323. Three, the one sentence he says here, which I thought was really interesting, because what happens here is that this, this scientific test ends up showing that there's health benefits to being nice to rabbits. Okay, well, let's take a look. Uh, I'll switch it to this, and we will go. We think about what it means to be human. In a secular world, bridges connecting science with gospel truth sometimes seem few and far between. Stop Yet as Christians... Tape. In a secular world, bridges connecting science with gospel truths sometimes seem few and far between. That is a loaded sentence, I think. First off, I think he's, he's acknowledging the fact that as far as Mormonism goes, you know, uh, science connecting with gospel truths, few and far between. He's saying it like it is. But saying that science rarely connects with gospel truths, I mean, what other gospel truths might he be talking about where there is a disconnect between science and gospel truths? And what about the idea, by the way, Jonathan, what about the idea in Mormonism that all truth can be encompassed within Mormonism? In other words, Mormonism accepts all truth. And like Joseph Smith said, if you don't accept all truth, no matter where it comes from, you will not come out a good Mormon in the end. What happened about this thing that's also in the temple, that all truth can be circumscribed into one great whole? He's drawing a distinction between little bits and pieces of science, the ones that correlate with gospel truths. Those are the ones that can be accepted when really all scientific truth 
and all gospel truth. I feel like I'm doing a scene out of Karate Kid. <laughs> but actually, they're all in the same circle. It's wax on, wax off, right? Yes. But really, these are not separate. This is a Venn diagram. These should, he's, he's doing two big circles that have a tiny piece of intersection here. Yeah. Really, it should all be together, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I, this speaks again to our whole discussion about 1984, where if you can control the paradigm of truth, then you can control how people behave and the, and the actions that they do. And we're seeing some vestiges of the pre-enlightenment world, where religions were the ones that held the domain of truth. Because they could make metaphysical claims about the world and our existence, and no one could prove them wrong. And since they did that backed by the, the power of God or the voice of God, then there was some legitimacy and authority to it. And that was the authority on our reality, on our truth. And so the mythologies that explained the actual objective things that happened in the world were infused with religious metaphor, religious themes, and religious stories. You know, from Thor and the thunderclouds to, uh, you know, any other story that might explain where we come from and where we're going after life. And now we've moved post-enlightenment where we've developed the scientific method. We use uh, objective, testable facts in order to explain the world around us. And there is a new authority that can have a great explanatory power to what the world actually is. And so there's this tension now between religion and science. And you know, to the extent that religion wants to hold on to this authority paradigm about truth and the world it is, you've got to find some way to blend the two. And he's acknowledging that there's a disconnect there. Uh, and I, you know, I think his job is to find a way for people to bridge it. And you do that by confining yourself to more ethereal social things than objective world things. And as you're aware, and you've talked about before, the, the Book of Mormon is full of objective world things from, you know, no death before Adam and Eve to uh, no inhabitants of the Book of Mormon to, you know, things that were supposedly in uh, the Americas before the, uh, the settlers got here that now we see as anachronisms. Well, we've got to, you know, reinvent truth and confine truth to only things about being good to other people and believing in, you know, theology and separate the world of science from it. And, um, you know, where that where religion oversteps its bounds, where people say, well, uh, we don't need to listen to science in a pandemic or something like that. Um, that's where you know, things get muddled. You know, uh, when you were talking there, and you may actually have already said this, but it really made it occur to me that this is almost a tacit admission that there's very little scientific evidence. Science mm -hmm. covers a lot of ground. Archaeology, yeah. history, anthropology. There's very few connections between science and Mormonism. Yeah. So you're and right. It doesn't and the places where they claims. the places where they connect science generally trumps or disproves or impeaches the claims of Mormonism. Right. Good point. Can we go to stamp right. ten point zero zero? And I think Let's it's important it. that we we not just criticize or that I not just criticize what he's saying, but he actually says something here that's good, even though I okay. have a problem with it. But go ahead. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are dismayed when we hear of how children of God are mistreated based on their race. We've been heartbroken to hear of recent attacks on people who are black, Asian, Latino, or of any other group. Prejudice, racial tension, or violence should never have any place in our neighborhoods, communities, or within the church. There you go. 
So I think this is a good message, and he's not the only one to say it, and this isn't not the only place in his talk where he says it. But I think this is important as a message. The thing that always strikes me is when you break that last sentence down and take out a lot of the, uh, the commas, what he says is prejudice. That's what he starts off with. Prejudice should never have any place within the church. That's what he says. Prejudice should never have any place within the church. And it's just so seemingly unaware or oblivious or wanting to whistle past the graveyard with not addressing the very real fact that prejudice has had a prominent place in the LDS church. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I don't know that it's, they have this pattern now of acting as though pre-1978 did not exist. And the church has always been what it is today. And even beyond that, like maybe pre-2012 didn't really exist because that's when Professor Botts got caught teaching the uh, this fence-sitter doctrine about where black people came from, and that was when they actually disavowed that. They got fired um, for teaching Mormon doctrine. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, the, I agree with you. It's good that this is an is a affirmative statement that is being put out on the current relevant moral issues of the day. Um there, there's you know a lot to be said about the way that that discussion is taking place in wider society as a whole, but that's for another conversation. Right. All right. So I would say, um, going back to your 1984 metaphor, mm -hmm. um, we have always been at war with East yes. Asia. And what I hear from them, though they don't actually come out and say it, they, they imply it strongly, we have always uh, been against prejudice based upon race. Yeah, and there's this kind of doublespeak going on already anyway, where he says that, you know, we don't want to have prejudice against any other group, any other group. And, and there are a lot of people who are vocally critic about the church for its inherent sexist policies of having certain roles just for men in the uh, leadership of the church, in the priesthood of the church, uh, in a way that cannot be justified uh, by anything other than just uh, an outright assertion. Um, then it, it also, you know, the fact that, yes, we cannot have, uh, we're now allow black people into the temple and to hold the priesthood, but we do not allow gay men and women who are living their life in full expression of that reality to either hold the priesthood or attend the temple. So there still is a temple ban. It's just a temple ban. You've, you know, you, you've got to put on straight face if you're going to be gay and want to go to the temple in the, in the Mormon church. You've got to live life as though you were a single heterosexual person. Um, it's, it's still a problem and they're, they're moving slowly on it, but We'll see. Right. We have two more talks. We've got 20 minutes for Elder Gong and then 20 minutes for President Eyring. Uh, so, Elder Gong, why is it I always think of Chuck Barris when I say his name? Elder Gong. The city. Yes, he says the city. Uh, but this room in the inn is the name of his talk. And basically what he's trying to say is there's room for everybody. All are welcome. All welcome within the inn. And the inn is the church, right? So he's trying mm. to give us a, a very inclusive message. And... He does the best he can with it, but there's a few gaps and things that he's really not talking about the LDS church that he knows about, which are somewhat less inclusive than the way he's presenting it. Now, here's something he says, um, timestamp 0046, because he tells a story. He's going to talk about the Good Samaritan here in just a second, because that's another thing he talks about, because the Good Samaritan helps you know, out uh, uh, the guy on the road, right? Yeah. So 
even though he's not of his tribe and they have this uh, antipathy toward each other, he's going to help out. Um, but here's this interesting story that he tells about right before introducing the Good Samaritan. And it was strange here, not so much for what he says, but for what he doesn't say. All right, let's get into it. On that trip, I felt other cries and wounds. A young woman was selling ice cream from a small push cart. Her wafer cones were just the size for a single scoop of ice cream. For some reason, a large man confronted the young woman. Yelling and pushing, he tipped over her cart, spilling her ice cream cones. There was nothing I could do as he crushed the cones with his boots. I can still see the young woman on her knees in the street, trying to save broken wafer pieces, tears of anguish streaming down her face. Her image haunts me, a reminder of the unkindness, uncaring misunderstanding we too often inflict on each other. There you go. Okay, so this was a strange story to me, especially when he links it up with the, um, the Good Samaritan parable, because he says in the middle of it, there was nothing I could do. And I think, okay, really, there's nothing you could do? Uh, I understand that this guy may be raging and maybe you don't want to get involved because he's going to turn on you and things are going to get really ugly. I understand being scared or concerned about that. That's a very real human emotion. And I wish he had talked about that. But when he says there was nothing I could do, that's really not true. And then there's the other part about it. Well, what after the guy leaves, right? He talks about how the anguish this young woman was in, but the thing that's missing is him doing anything about it. Going over, comforting her. I expect he would have mentioned it if he had done it. So this is a very strange story to use as an example before getting to the parable of the Good Samaritan, who obviously does do something. Yeah. Um, and I thought it would be a, a helpful if he had maybe talked about how, you know, and I think about it, I'm haunted by it because I didn't do anything. I should have done something. And I committed at that time that if anything like that ever happened, I was going to do something. I mean, we've yeah. all had experiences like that where maybe we didn't leap to the rescue or do what we felt we should have. But he doesn't grapple with that. And by the way, by the way, Jonathan, as mm -hmm. I was reading this, as I was listening to it this time, it suddenly occurred to me that the role that Elder Gong played in this horrible situation that he's witnessing is exactly the same as the role that the LDS Church has Jesus play when bad things happen to us. Which is, you, you're just like, oh, that's, that's really bad. That's really bad. I feel bad for you. Next. Not only that, but, yeah, not only that, but the, the story of the Good Samaritan didn't just include the Samaritan. It included other people. And the whole point of that story was to show that these people who we consider to be outsiders and unclean are the ones who are actually doing the compassionate work. While we, the clean ones, you know, the, the, the priests, the, the religious ones are the ones who walk by or go to the other side of the road. And in this story, I agree with you, he could, because that, that point still needs to be made today. You know, Christ was making that point to people who thought they were God's chosen people at that time to show that, like, just because you think you're chosen doesn't mean that you're acting as though you are, you know, the living will of, of Christ's, of God's compassion. You, you've got to do more. You've got to be more. And he could be making that point here, but he doesn't. Now, to give him credit, this happened at least 20 years ago because his dad died 20 years earlier, and it happened when he was in graduate school. So he was a young man at that point, and I think those points would make it even more powerful or, or 
apt for him to say, you know, I, I look back on that moment and I feel a twinge of shame and guilt for not acting on my convictions at that time, but it, it made an impression in my heart that I will act out in compassion in the future. Right, and now if you get the timestamp 217, this is just two minutes and 17 seconds into his talk. It's very shortly after where he talks about um, the parable of the Good Samaritan in a way that you think, okay, this seems to be really contradicting what you just said happened with this young girl in Paris. Some thistles. On our dusty roads to Jericho, we're beset upon, wounded, and left in pain. Though we should help each other, too often we pass to the other side of the road for whatever reason. There you go. See, that's exactly what he described himself as doing in France, was passing on the other side of the road, and yet he doesn't make that connection for us. It seems like he's giving two different messages here without recognizing that when he's preaching, he's preaching to himself as a young man. Yeah. Well, it is hard to... Uh be self-deprecating in that mode when you're an apostle of God because then people might think less of you but they, I guess they, they, don't, they don't realize that that actually gives authenticity to your message and it makes your message more impactful if you as a person talking are able to show your own flaws that you're connecting with your audience a lot better because audience, everyone knows their own flaws and if they see you by example doing that you're going to connect with your audience better but I don't know occasionally I think Elder Holland does this where he acknowledges his own struggles with mental health yeah. And that's, uh, you know, th those messages are really powerful because he connects his own vulnerabilities with that of his audience. But we don't see that happen too frequently. Yeah, right. Now, um, let me go to, by the way, and maybe this is as far as he can go in making that connection. I don't know, uh, personally mm -hmm. and emotionally. But, um, yeah, I think it would be stronger if he did that. Now, there's this, um, the rest of that, let's not play it. Because what he's going to do is here he's going to say very clear at the end, that's where the Good Samaritan takes the person by the side of the road, right? Uh, at the end, he goes, he takes care of him, pays him money, and the end can represent the church where all are welcome, right? Now, if you go to, we're get, he's going to leave the story for a second. Can you go to timestamp 518? Because this yeah. is a bit different, but it's an interesting part where he talks about the gift of tongues and in such a way as to completely redefine it in a way that I've never heard of before in my life. And bless. A Spanish language interpreter told me, Elder Gong, I knew by the spirit what you were going to say so I could translate this faithful brother said by the gift of tongues. There you go. What is that about? So he's someplace and he's uh, speaking, presumably in English, and he's got an interpreter, so obviously this is a Spanish language interpreter. He's in some uh, country that speaks Spanish. And after it's over, the interpreter tells him, Elder Gong, I knew by the Spirit what you were going to say so I could translate. I mean, that seems strange because obviously he's going to know what he says after he says it so he can translate. That's the way interpreters usually work, right? They listen yeah. to what is said and then they translate. And frankly, these gentlemen usually go off script so that uh, the interpreters have the script in the first place and can work on it in advance. Maybe that wasn't happening here. But what mm -hmm. he says is, I knew what you were going to say so I could translate by the gift of tongues. When did the gift of tongues become knowing what someone's going to say in advance? Well, it's been several things over the years, if I recall correctly. 
you know, if you look back at the early uh, Christian practices of it, you know, it's supposed to be like somebody giving guttural utterances that are in a language that no one can seem to understand, and then you have somebody interpreting that, and that performance then kind of is is part of the I don't know the char the charisma and the liveliness of the religious uh, experience, and it kind of gives you a participation into something that seems like godly power. And if I recall correctly, that's what the early paradigm was in the Mormon church. Right, it was the tongue of angels. It was the Adamic language. Somebody right, so a language that nobody knew. Right. Right. And then it became, then, or then it became being able to speak in a language, a, a regular language that you've never learned before, kind of like uh -huh. the other side of heaven. And then it became, I mean, it all gets watered down as you go along, right? Then it became going to the MTC and being able to learn a foreign language faster than you would be able to if you were studying at some place other than right. the MTC, yeah. right? It's just faster, it's not really measurable, but there's all right. these stories about the CIA agents coming over to the MTC, right? And studying their methods for teaching language because they can't teach their agents foreign language as fast as these missions. You heard those, didn't you? No, I, well, I didn't go to the MTC, but that sounds like some great mythology. I think so too. And, um, but now, I, I've never heard this before, but now anticipating what someone's going to say is <laughs> the gift of tongues. But step back now. He's not saying, he's not saying, so I went ahead and did the translation before you said it. I oh, mean, you're right, he, he's, not. he's like, he still had to listen to the guy and say it. It's just like maybe he was forming the words before he said them, but if, if Elder Gong had changed it, he would have, you know, adapted to that because he's a translator. He's like, right, you know, you just, silly. you sit in, you sit in the podium, Elder Gong. I'm just going to provide the translation. You don't know how to do nothing because I already know what you're going to say. <laughs> Which, you know, <laughs> to be fair, these translators go with them to ward and conference after conference and they're giving the same talk over and over again. So yeah, you're going to know what he's going to say. Yes, you are. Now, if I were an interpreter, I would have an incredible temptation that I would have to resist constantly. <laughs> what is that? To translate wrong. <laughs> on purpose as a joke and then he would not know why everyone is laughing when he's not being funny <laughs> <laughs> okay so now he talks about now he talks about um, uh, COVID-19 and how it is that faith works differently in different situations if a person dies then your faith works differently than if they live sort of it's a little bit more detailed than that it's the next paragraph okay so let's go there gifts of faith and assurance come manifest differently in different situations. One dear sister received spiritual comfort as her husband passed away from COVID-19. She said, I know my dear husband and I will be together again. In a different COVID situation, another dear sister said, I felt I should plead with the Lord and the doctors to give my husband just a little more time. Okay, so what the heck is going on there? It's like, okay, you can have faith that uh, it's okay for your husband to die from the COVID, and it's okay if you have faith to plead with the Lord to give him a little bit more time, uh, just a little more time, by the way, not healing. There's no healing going on here. There's no priesthood blessing that's gonna heal somebody. It's just praying to God for a little more time that he not pass away from the COVID. And both of those are okay, and he says these are the gifts of faith manifest differently in different situations. What do you make of that, Jonathan? 
this happens at another talk in the conference, and I think we'll get to it eventually, where somebody brings up an example of miracles again, and he uses two different islands in in the in the uh, Philippines or the Polynesian islands where he was coming. Yeah, he was coming to a conference. Both you know, it was rain and storm affecting both islands, and both islands prayed for the rains to stop so they could hear. One island, the weather happened, the rain stopped, and they saw that as a miracle, an answer to prayer, and a proof of faith. It increased their faith. And the other island, the rain didn't stop, even though they prayed the same way, and that also was an increase of faith because it was a testament to their faith that they sat through the rain to listen to the prophet talk. And so this is where you use both scenarios to prove your point because you're trying to set up a, a, a heads I win tails you lose scenario where you can never room nothing ever proves that these men don't have the power they claim to have or that the religious paradigm that they have you know you can't disprove it and this is just another example of that it's it's just it's painful though because he's now talking about people at their most vulnerable and it speaks both to the power of the the church to bind people because it does have a very comforting story about being connected with your loved ones in the life after this but that carrot gets dangled out in front of you to compel you to shape your entire life and make all of your choices give of your money your time and your resources to this organization so that you can have that promise and that's where the problem comes in but it, it's clear in these stories that it is a powerful message that helps people if they accept it at that time yeah, it's like the opposite of a Kobayashi Maru scenario. It's not a no-win <laughs> situation. It's a no-lose situation. I love your Star Trek references. This well, is thank great. Thank you. It's very kind of you. Now he's going to go on to talk about how it is. It's all inclusiveness, and everybody is welcome and belongs in the Lord's Church in the end. Second, he entreats us to make his inn a place of grace and space where each can gather with room for all. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are all equal, with no second-class groups. All are <laughs> welcome to attend sacrament meetings, other Sunday meetings, and social events. What? Why are you laughing? I know I laugh demonically. Why are you laughing? Well, I just... As disciples of Christ, all are equal, with no second-class groups. Everybody's welcome to sacrament meetings and Sunday meetings and social events and the temple. Well, not the temple. He's actually going to address the temple later on. He is going to make uh, talk about the temple, but he's not going to talk about it as a place everybody can go. Well, you can all go there if you're obedient to the commandments. See? So now, yeah. but it is interesting. There's no second class groups where you can all attend sacrament meetings. We may not all be able to take the sacrament. We may not all be able to stand up and pray depending yeah. upon how we conduct ourselves. And social events, yeah, everybody can go to all those social events. But this is where he's trying to give the illusion of the inclusivity of the LDS church, when you and I know the reality is actually quite different. Now, let yeah. me see here if I can find where he talks about, oh, to the temple. Now, <laughs> this is where he makes a distinction, right? The end of his parable, right? The end is the church, but... His house is the temple. So everybody can, is welcome in the inn. But hey, not in his house, man. Don't go overboard. Not everybody can go into God's house. Okay, you I'm just sorry. What? Okay, if, if I go and visit my brother, yeah. and he's got like a house with a bunch of rooms in it, a bunch of beds and everything, 
And I'm like, hey, dude, I'm coming over. We're going to totally hang out and everything. He's like, yeah, that's great. I want you to stay at the hotel on the other end of uh, town. I'm going to be like, what? Am I a second-class citizen? I, I, we're family. Why can't I just stay at the house? You know, that, let's do that. He's like, no, 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 no. You're going to be at the inn, not at the house. Like, clearly there's a second. Like, I would be hurt if that was the thing. You know, granted, it's his house. He can do what he wants to do, but we're brothers. Let's, what's the deal? And I would do that for him if he was coming to town. Even if I didn't have enough room, I'd be like, please stay here. Like, don't stay at the hotel. You know, that's then we had to deal with all that crap. But here we've got the inn and the house. No second-class citizens. What do you call the citizens who can't go to the house but are welcome at the inn? Are they... You just use a different word for second class. I don't know. Let's go. Okay. What's the timestamp? 9.36. All right. I do go on. You just have to stop me. The Book of Mormon. He brings us to his inn and also to his house, the Holy Temple. The house of the Lord is a place where, as with the wounded man on the road to Jericho, the Good Samaritan can cleanse and clothe us, prepare us to return to God's presence, and unite us eternally in God's family. His temples are open to all who live his gospel with faith and obedience. There you go. So his temples are open to all. See? Did you hear that? Yes. Who live his gospel with faith and obedience. So what he basically said there is, uh, okay, there's nobody second class in this church except for those who are second class in the church. Yeah. Uh, Everybody's equal except for those who aren't. Right. And, and some, some people are more, are more equal, equal than others. Equal than others. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. I, yeah. I'm, trying, I'm trying to get this. What? Who's the who's the good Samaritan in his in his little parable here? The house of the Lord is the place where, as with the wounded man on the road to Jericho, the good Samaritan can cleanse and clothe us. Okay, hold on a second here. The, the good Samaritan took them to an inn, so he's mixing up his metaphor here. He's because he's saying he'd go to the house. The good Samaritan went to an inn. Not only that, the good Samaritan was the non the unclean non non Jewish person, and. He's not in the temple doing stuff yeah, like this is not go to the temple. You're right. Right. I mean, this is like this is a terrible mixed up metaphor from the paradigm of the church itself. Now, granted, we're going let's let go of our nitpickiness and just say we want to encourage people to take care of those who are in a bad way. And that's fine. That's great. Do temples actually do that? Oh, I guess it depends on a personal uh, experience may vary, I suppose. Well, the whole point of the Good Samaritan story is that all you people who sit in your houses of greatness and pat yourself on the back about how good a person you are, it doesn't really matter if you're not out there actually doing things. Now, what expression of sitting in a big, fancy, rich house, patting your back for how good a person you are, is there that's more pure and crystalline? It's like the crystal mouth of, you know, religious self-aggrandizement is sitting in the temple when you could be out doing things. Even the temple itself and the funds that go into it and what it does is the antithesis of the story of the Good Samaritan where you're going out and actually helping people. Anyway. Well, you're right. I, I like this little turn of phrase, even in this mixed metaphor, by the way, excellent points there. That the house of the Lord is a place where it's with the wounded man on the road to Jericho. The Good Samaritan can cleanse and clothe us with a nice little oblique reference to the uh, washings, anointings, and the, yeah. the garment, right? That yeah, that, nice that is some... That's some inside baseball for people who don't understand what goes on in the temple. They will that will go whoo right over their head. 
Can I tell you something though that's that's even more striking to me about this? There's the inn. There's the house. They're all equal. There's uh, what do you say? They're all equal. There are no second class citizens. Jonathan, Elder Gong knows that there's another higher class of citizens. There's church Mormons, there's chapel Mormons, there's temple Mormons, and then there's Mormons who have received their second anointing. Anointing, yeah. And he's one of them. That's yeah. the, the thing that kills me. He's one of them. He's received his second anointing. He knows that most members don't even know about it because it's all hush-hush and secret, right? Yeah, you're not supposed that, to talk about it. Right. He knows he's in this highest class of members of the church who've received their second anointing, which is the highest holiest ordinance, which means you're gonna be saved in the celestial kingdom, really no matter what, unless you go crazy, right? And start shooting people or whatever. But basically you're gonna be saved there no matter what. You are beyond the reach of falling. Um, Or put another way, I wanna be accurate about it. Any sins that you commit, you're gonna have to, you'll be subject to whatever the buffetings of Satan are, but eventually you'll be saved in the kingdom of God. Don't bring up Satan's buffet, that was my favorite. You like Satan's Buffet? Satan's Buffet. I'm going to get the Buffet of Satan. Sorry, this is teenager John coming out. <laughs> but, but, so here he's saying there are no second-class citizens, and he knows that there's at least three classes, yeah. and he's in the top class, and that the top class that he's in is a secret from every almost everybody else in the lower two classes. Well, this is the um, this is the way he rationalizes it in his mind, and that is that, and he says it right there. The temples are open to all who live his gospel with faith and obedience. And you could say the same thing. The second anointing is open to all who happen to have a family member in the church as a leader preexistingly, so the nepotism of the church can help them elevate into the rank, or people who happen to own very successful business interests that have shown a life of giving money to the church so that they've proven themselves and they can go into the church and rise up in the ranks and then get a second anointing and be part of the special club. And then their relatives will also be open to all. It's like, uh, yeah, you know, if you're a human, then you fall in the category of people who can eventually get the second anointing. Therefore, you are not a second class citizen. You just won't get that. And you'll be treated as though you were a second class citizen. But it's kind of like Oaks talk where he's like, you know, there's some people who won't live up to the gospel and there's a kingdom of heaven for those people. They're still in heaven. But, you know, it's not my kingdom of heaven, the celestial kingdom of heaven. I mean, the whole point of Mormonism and their he- the three tiers of heaven is to create second-class citizens in the eternities. That's a very and third-class citizens. That's a very good point. You're right. Now, if we get something significant that he said, not that the other stuff has not been, timestamp 11.35. Okay, let's get there. Because now he is one of the two speakers in conference, the only speaker in this session, who's going to talk about the fact that now we've reached the point where the majority of adult members of the church are not married. do 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 Let's go. Why church? Also, the majority of adult church members are now unmarried, widowed, or divorced. This is a significant change. It includes more than half our Relief Society sisters and more than half our adult priesthood brothers. This demographic pattern has been the case in the worldwide church since 1992 and in the church in the United States and Canada since 2019. You stop there? Okay. Hmm. So this is huge and we know that the policy change got announced in the leadership meeting right before conference in the week before conference about how in young single adult wards and stakes now uh single men single men can be on the high council single men can be counselors in the young single adult stake presidencies and single Mm -hmm. men can be counselors in young single adult bishoprics and they're doing this now because of this because there are so many unmarried men 
and women, yeah. but men, you know, priesthood in the church, right? That they've got to start allowing single men to do things and fulfill jobs that were previously uh, given only to married Married. Yeah, it, it instantly opens up the pool of people who could potentially fill those callings where they were previously excluded. Right, and I think that likely this is a pilot program that's going to be extended wider to um, non-single adults, just regular wards. That'll probably happen in the not too far distant future because this demographic pattern is getting worse. Like he says, interestingly, the dem this demographic pattern has been the case in the worldwide church since 1992, at which point the church did nothing about it, right? Hmm. <laughs> and in the church in the United States and Canada since 2019, at which point they say, I think we need to do something about it. It raises the question, though, are there currently policies that are different for those outside of the church on this point? Are we just now seeing in America a policy that's already been existing out there? Kind of like, I believe that there was a, a normalization of the idea that you could get married civilly and then get married in the temple outside of America. Um, that was different here, but I, I may have the details on that wrong. But Yeah, and I don't know the answer to that question, but it is a good one. Now he gives us one sentence where he's going to try and revolutionize the message of the entire LDS church. All right, let's take a look. Our standing before the Lord and his church is not a matter of our marital status, but of our becoming faithful and valiant disciples of Jesus Christ. Off the wow. Day. What the heck? Except that's not what I said the first time I heard it. <laughs> I mean, our standing before the Lord is not a matter of our marital status. Where is this coming from? Well, obviously, it's coming from the reality of the demographics, right? Yeah. But I don't, I don't know about you, Jonathan, but I was always taught that our exaltation depends entirely upon our getting married and getting married in the temple. This really is kind of a we've always been at war with East Asia or whatever moment where you've got something that the church has completely stood for and has been the pivotal reason for many of its most important salvific ordinances or whatever. And then you just kind of say it, say something that completely contradicts it is a completely new paradigm. And you say it as though this is the truth we've always known. And if you're in the mode of whatever the brethren say is my reality, no matter what it is, even if it contradicts anything in the past, I, I only exist in the, in the now of what they say, then you just accept it. Yes. And so if this, you know, it's like he doesn't really even mean it. Does he even mean this? I don't know. I know that he's out of step with everything I've ever heard and out of step with other talks that will be given in this conference as well. Really? But if this is really true, if this is really true and this really represents where the church is, why are they still leaning on young people to get married as soon as possible and have children as soon as possible? It's the tithing farm. What are you talking? They don't even need the tithing farm. I can't use that anymore. They get more in interest on their current investments than they get on tithing. I, I, that's the lifeblood, you know, when you can't get converts, you got to give birth to them. Uh, I don't know. So this, this I thought was a remarkable statement. Can you play it again? Are you able to do well, that? Our yeah, I can. Or the Lord and in his church is not a bad, okay. All right, let's do it. Here we go. It was at 11. In his church and in the church in the United States and Canada since 2019. Here we go. Hold on. Our standing before the Lord and his church is not a matter of our marital status, but of our becoming faithful and valiant disciples of Jesus Christ. So, 
Incredible. It's funny. If you go to the temple and you watch the the temple ordinance, the the thing that prepares you, the, the whole, everything is centered towards that marriage relationship. And, and even the second anointing that we talked about, that is specifically an ordinance that is for a married couple. Only for and, a married couple. Exactly. And, and even the performance that you give in the temple at the veil is a model of what the man is supposed to do to bring the wife. I mean, we haven't talked about this before, but it does need to be talked about. The inherent sexism of getting a new name in the temple that you know your new name and you know your wife's new name, but your wife does not know your new name. And that's specifically because there's this paradigm where you are raised in in resurrection and brought into a kingdom, and she can't come in until she takes your hand and you call her by name and bring her through into that new supernal existence. And so that is inherently marriage bound. And this has been the justification for the church saying we can never budge on gay marriage. Now, to Gong's credit, if you reinvent the concept of marriage and separate it from your standing before God to this idea that you've got to be a disciple of Christ and that is the determining factor of your eternal trajectory, then it opens the door for new paradigms of marriage to be considered valid because two gay men who are married, but each of whom is a valiant disciple of Jesus Christ, should, by this statement, have no different standing before anyone, before Christ and therefore before the church, than a husband and wife. Very good point. Very good point. By the way, I have some bad news for my two ex-wives, Jonathan. (laughs) Uh, I seem to have forgotten their new names well uh, I'm, I'm sure they went hole. I'm sure they went and got somebody else who now knows their name uh, I don't think uh, they're going to be uh, getting admittance <laughs> okay let's keep going no soup for you <laughs> okay so now we get to the last talk and we've got nine minutes here we may be able to go over a little well, bit we, I, I'm loose I, I don't have anything to go on to so if we go over I'm okay as long as you're, you don't have a hearing to run off to or something Jonathan Streeter is loose as a goose this is I'd love to see the temple by President Henry B. Eyring and here's where he's going to talk about how important it is to go to the My temple dear and get sealed as a family and in marriage and your family right and your kids to you so he's going to give his talk which is directly contradicting the sentiment that Elder Gong just gave right before his. But here he start, starts with the introduction, which is just kind of funny to me. It starts at 0.00. That's a timestamp on it, if you can find right. that, Jonathan. Let's, but it's yeah, so funny it. the, way, the way he constructs his beginning talk, because these are part of his comments that he has written down that have been fed into the teleprompter and that he's going to read now, but they are designed to make it sound like it's extemporaneous. <laughs> In fact, it could only be understood as being extemporaneous. This is why I find this humorous. Can you play the first part? Let's do it. My dear brothers and sisters, I am grateful to be with you in this first session of General Conference. The speakers, the music, and the prayer have brought the spirit. Yeah, I was reading that. As well as a feeling of light and hope. Extemporaneous time. That feeling has brought back to my memory the first day I walked into the Salt Lake Temple. I was a young man. There you go. <laughs> now, you, you see Do what it. I'm talking about? Yeah. 
He's saying, hey, he's I can just see him. The script. And he's yes. saying the speakers, the music, and the prayer, which he'd never heard when he was actually writing this and when it was being fed into the teleprompter. But now yeah. he's going to say, as if he's experiencing this right now, the speakers, the music, and the prayer have brought the spirit, as well as a feeling of light and hope. That feeling has brought back to my memory. <laughs> The first day I walked into the Salt Lake Temple. And now he's going to tell the story that he told just a year and a half ago. Back in 2019, I think it was. He's going to tell the same story. It's like he has a, a really small... Uh, repertoire of stories. Repertoire. Thank you. <laughs> uh, a small sobriquet. No, a small repertoire of stories. <laughs> um, so I just thought this is funny. It's like, uh, I'm going to write this as if it's uh, impromptu. But I will write it in such a way that I couldn't possibly do this if I'm writing it in advance. So just letting you know, uh, President uh, Irene, we do know this and we do appreciate your effort in that regard to make it sound impromptu. It sounds um, like you think he's insincere. I'm just going to say that. Did I say that? No. But the point you're making kind of implies it. I really didn't know uh, that, but you might be right. Um, you know, here's the thing. Okay, can you replay this, this first part about his story? Because he doesn't always tell this part with the story. This is where he goes to the temple, right? First time, and he goes to the temple, and he thinks, he hears a voice saying, like, um, uh, wow, I, I've been in a place like this sometime before. It's so beautiful, right? And then he, a voice comes to him and says, no. <laughs> no, you haven't been in this place before. But you were in a place that was similar. You know, oh. in this beautiful pre-mortal existence. My parents but, but now he tells this little story. Oh, sorry. It's okay. okay. He tells this little story. It's a funny story in advance. All right only companions that day. Inside, they paused for a moment to be, greeted, to be greeted by a temple worker. I walked on ahead of them alone for a moment. I was greeted by a little white-haired lady in a beautiful white temple dress. She looked up at me and smiled and then said very softly, Welcome to the temple, Brother Irene. I thought for a moment she was an angel because she knew my name. I had not realized that a small card with my name on it had been placed on the lapel of my suit coat. Okay, can you stop there? Now that is, it's kind of a funny story. It's kind of a humor story. But honestly, this guy's at 19 years old, right? I think even yeah. back when he went to the temple, he had to be 19 years old, uh, and that's probably how old he was. But, I mean, he's not telling this story like he's kidding. He actually thought this little white-haired lady was an angel because she knew his name. This, this sounds like the definition of gullible to me. It sounds like President Eyring is the Martin <laughs> Harris of modern Mormonism. Uh, I think that he puts out an unassuming facade but he is a very shrewd and intelligent person okay because he's not showing it at this point yeah okay shrewd and intelligent eh I, I think so I mean he didn't rise to the heights that he's at by being a dupe are you sure it, well I mean the thing is some people's intelligence is not so much in numbers and figures or whatever but it's in how to project emotion or be a powerful speaker and I think he is a genius at emotional uh, you know hitting the right emotional buttons in his talks 
it doesn't it, once you wake up to it it doesn't affect you as much but if you're in the mode he's very good at connecting with his audience but but these are businessmen. He's he's got to have some business acumen as well, and I think his background is in some sort of business administration stuff. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I guess his strong suit is in identifying uh, people in temples. So let's go ahead. <laughs> now he's gonna. I mean, everybody's got their weakness. You know, Indiana Jones doesn't like snakes. So snakes. Elgarin <laughs> forgets where he is in the temple. His problem is, right. his problem is the difference between telling the the difference between old ladies and angels. Yes. So. Uh, I hope you're not an angel because that means I'm going to be old when I'm an angel. <laughs> <laughs> you mean I'm going to look like you? He should have asked him to shake his hand. Yeah, oh, <laughs> that you're, you're joking about the temple. All right, let's keep going. Okay, so this he goes on. Okay, here we go. Uh, uh, Stepped past her and stopped. I looked up at a high white ceiling that made the room so light it seemed almost as if it were open to the sky. And in that moment, the thought came into my mind in these clear words. I have been in this lighted place before. But then immediately there came into my mind not in my own voice, these words. No, you have never been here before. You are remembering a moment before you were born. You were in a sacred place like this. Yeah. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, why, I, why are you I, laughing? I don't even know why you're responding to this. I was reading. I was reading it. I was reading ahead, and I thought he said, "No, you were remembering the moment you were born." I'm like, "Oh yeah, the baby was probably looking at the lights that the doctor had shining, and the walls were his mother's thighs as he was the bright light at the end of the tunnel as he was getting born." But it's no, it's the moment before you were born, which raises interesting questions because if he's somewhere else and then his spirit enters the body right when he's born that it totally changes the mormon paradigm of abortion but we're not going to go there anyway keep going no so <clears throat> i mean this is the thing and uh can you just play this next uh paragraph because then we're going to go to when he told the story in october of 2019 a year and a half ago on the outside of our temples we place the words holiness to the lord I know for myself that those words are true. The temple is a holy place where revelation comes to us easily if our hearts are open to it and we are worthy of it. Okay, so I just wanted to have that thing about holiness to the Lord because that's going to link up to this one from October of 2019 general conference as well. He leaves out the little old lady slash angel in that recounting of the story. But think about this. This is April 2021. So there's been October and April of 2020. And then the next conference before that is October 2019 general conference. There's only two conferences between this conference and the one where he told the same story before. I mean, doesn't he not have people to tell him, hey, you just you just told the story. It's like when you're talking to an older person and they keep telling you the same story or they, they bring up something that they mentioned before. 
I don't know why this is so important to him, but he certainly wants to impress it upon us. Here's what he says really quick, okay? Mm-hmm. I'll do it really quick. Okay. Uh, what, this October 2019 Gen Con. One experience of wanting more holiness came for me in the Salt Lake Temple. I entered the temple for the first time, having been told little of what to expect. I had seen the words on the building, holiness to the Lord. See that connection? And the house of the Lord. I felt a great sense of anticipation, yet I wondered if I was prepared to enter. My mother and father walked ahead of me as we entered the temple. We were asked to show our recommends certifying our worthiness. My parents knew the man at the recommend desk, so they lingered a moment to speak with him. I went ahead, I went ahead alone into a large space where everything was sparkling white. Where did he go? I don't know. I'm not sure. I haven't been into the Salt Lake Temple. I don't know where he went to where everything was sparkling white, but he did. I looked up at a ceiling so high above me it seemed an open sky. In that moment, a clear impression came to me that I had been there before, right? Okay. So that's the same thing. Are you trying to find it? I heard a very soft voice. It was not this my is- own. Where are you? The softly spoken words in my mind were these. What's going on? You have never been here before. <gasps> you are remembering a moment before you were born. It gets you were in time. a place, a sacred place like this. You felt the Savior was about to come into the place where you stood. Ooh, that's better. And you felt happiness because you were eager to see him. This is like first vision stuff. The, 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 the accounts do differ. They kind of differ, you know, but they're not irreconcilable. Mm, true. We can reconcile them. So the lady angel is gone, but the savior is just about to come into the room. And this is really interesting to me because um, there's two revelations he receives here, which I think is interesting. He receives the first revelation, which is wrong, by the way. The first revelation is this clear thought coming into his head, which is you have been here before. But then another uh, revelation, this is like dueling banjos, You've got a contradictory revelation saying, no, no, no. That first revelation you heard, that's all messed up. Actually, you've never been here before. Get it straight, Hank. You've never been here before. Actually, you were in the pre-mortal existence. You were just in a place like this. But it was much better. Jesus is about to come in the room and the angel's head now. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> that's not the, I think he uh, uses a story of a healing a girl uh, later in this conference as well that is another yes. story that he's used multiple times. It's like, you know, we've got a very few stories. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, this is tied very much into the temple. I mean, the, even when you leave the church, there's something about the temple where you can't really joke about it or talk about it. It takes a while before that deep programming lets go because it's part of these things. I don't know if you have the same effect where you just you don't talk about it. And for me, I know like if I do go into temple criticism or temple issues, my, my family members that I might be talking with, they just shut right down. They do not want you to talk about it. Uh, but part of the reason they feel that way is because you have general authorities talking like this. This now, the temple is a physical utopian ideal that exists in your life. And so you, it, it's like, it's this thing. He mentions that, you know, you have to be worthy to go into the temple. And I remember as a little kid, I'm like, I made it into the temple. Yeah. Can you can you think about bad things in the temple? I'm going to try to, do I want to try to, I'm going to attempt, I'm going to test it and see if I can think about a bad thing in the temple. No, I can't do it. I feel too guilty. I can't do it. I can't think about a bad thing in the temple. I don't know if you went through this. This is Teenage John doing this stuff. Are are we live? Uh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. Oh. Uh, so I, think I said I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't do it. I know. I know you couldn't do it. That's what's alarming to me. Like <laughs> issues there that are still with you. Boy, but when I left the temple, though, it worked. Anyway, keep going. All right. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> the question that raises for me is, have you sought professional help? No, the question that raises for me is, does, I mean, President Iring, let's get that back to President Iring, safer ground. Has he, he's been, he's been an apostle, you know, since God was a kid for crying out loud. Does he really have so few stories? Is his life that is full of apostolic service and uh, blessings, apparently, and everything, is it so devoid of incidents of note or interest that this is all he can talk about is from back when he went to the temple for the first time? It seems strange to me. Uh, we, I would expect that an apostle would have more to talk about, is what I'm saying. So um, now he's going to go on. And he's going to tell a story I actually hadn't heard before, but he's going to be very cryptic about it. And he's going to talk about it in terms of it sort of being there's this prophecy that um, or vision that he receives that uh, is associated with an experience in the temple. So, but once right. again, these are very old, old stories. And listen to it very carefully because he breaks it down into two stories. He's not super clear about this, but one of the stories has to do with his um, first day in the temple, same day, right, that he's talking about. And the second one's going to have to do with when he went back to the temple to get married. Okay. Later that first day, I again felt the same spirit. The temple ceremony includes some words that brought a feeling of a burning in my heart, confirming that what was being portrayed was true. What I felt was personal to me regarding my future. And it became a reality 40 years later through a call to serve from the Lord. Can you stop there for just a second? Because if we actually listen to what it is he's saying, what is he talking about, Jonathan? I mean, you know the temple ceremony as well as I do. What words from the temple ceremony is he talking about that he brought a feeling of burning in his heart, confirming that what was being portrayed, right? It's the endowment, that what was being portrayed was true. And then it became a reality for President Iring 40 years later when he was called to serve the Lord. What is he talking about, do you think? I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of he's old enough where he was probably going to the temple before the Michael Balam video was made. I know that would cause a burning in his heart. It certainly caused yeah. a burning in mine. <laughs> uh, he's old enough uh, that when he went to the temple, they were actually still sacrificing animals. No, no, come on. Uh, <laughs> but did they do, before those videos, did they do live performances in all temples? Yeah. Before well, the... Before 19, it was like in the 1950s or 60s when they started that in the Swiss temple having films. So, but uh, it was a Salt Lake temple. He's he identified that in one of his okay. versions. Remember? Okay, so no, it no, was no, you're right. It was live. I don't know. I can't. Something that was being performed that would then be made a reality for him in the future. Because when you're going through the temple and the endowment. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. What are you talking it, about? We, we are true apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Is he actually saying that when John comes up there and says to Adam and Eve, we are true apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, he felt a burning in his heart, confirming that what was being said was true. 
And I felt it was personal to me regarding my future. And lo and behold, 40 years later, hello. No, no, no. It was, what? you don't sell your signs and tokens for money. <laughs> and then later he later? did. Oh, my no. Lord. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I, I, this is what happens when I have not had coffee recently. I'm a bad influence <clears throat> on you, I can tell. Well, I should have had a cup with me. But he gets, okay. the, same, he gets the same feeling. Uh, this is the second story, which is related. When he's getting married, and President Kimball, of course, is performing the ceremony like he did with me. Um, most of us have had our ceremonies performed by general authorities and a president of the church at the time. So obviously, President Irene was kind of a big deal even then. Either that mm. or his wife was. So can you play the tape here? Yeah, let's do it. I experienced the same feeling when I was married in the Logan, Utah temple. President Spencer W. Kimball performed the ceiling. In the few words he spoke, he gave this counsel, quote, Hal and Kathy live so that when the call comes, you can walk away easily. As he said those few words, I saw clearly in my mind in full color a steep hill and a road leading up to the top. A white fence ran on the left side of the road and disappeared into a row of trees at the top of the hill. A white house was barely visible through the trees. Okay, so this is, I think, interesting um, is that uh, he has a visionary experience. And I don't know how much this ends up being colored by what happens later or by the passage of time, but this is certainly how he recalls it and made an impression. So President Kimball says to them, Hal and Kathy live so that when the call comes, you can walk away easily. Now I do have kind of an idea that maybe this is something that Spencer Kimball said to lots of different people, you know, live so that when the call comes, whatever that call might be, Live so that you can walk away easily and you're not going to have to choose between uh, what your lifestyle versus serving the church. And, here, and as you mentioned, what? this is Henry B. Eyring, son of an already existing general authority. Uh, so he's basically and he's got the prophet doing his wedding. So it's like, hey, you know, there's this thing called nepotism that we got going on here. So you just be ready for when the time comes. <laughs> Yes. And, you know, Spencer Kimball apparently told everybody that they were going to be an apostle. Uh, he, <laughs> it's just like, you know, he's, he's, he's not putting it all on red. He's, he's hedging his bets and he tells everybody yes. they're going to be an apostle. The only reason I say that is because of D. Michael Quinn, right? You remember that story? D. Michael Quinn said no. that President Kimball told him that told he would be an apostle. Oh, great. No, I don't remember that. But there's still time left. So it may okay. come fast. And... If it doesn't happen in this life, you know the old failsafe, right? It'll happen in the life to come. Exactly. This is the opposite of the Kobayashi Maru. But now, now, this visionary house that he sees in this uh, landscape in the hill and the road and the fence and the White House mm -hmm. and the trees, one year later, he's going to see in reality what he saw in vision there in the temple. Oh, all right. One year later, I recognized that hill as my father-in-law drove us up that road. It was in detail what I saw when President Kimball gave his counsel in the temple. 
When we got to the top of the hill, my father-in-law stopped by the White House. He told us that he and his wife were buying the property and that he wanted his daughter and me to live in the guest house. They would live in the main house just a few feet away. Okay, so there's the tape, right? So here's the amazing thing. Now, I don't know how much detail, I can't see the vision he saw in his head, how much detail this matches. It is possible, let me just say that there's a temptation to try and make things like this match more accurately than they may actually match in order to emphasize the uh, the coincidence of it, the amazingness of it. I can't see into his vision. I can't see the picture of the house, so I don't know. I'll just take him at his word that that's the case. He's talking about the amazingness of seeing this, temp uh, this temple, this White House again, and then his father-in-law stops by the White House and says, hey, me and my wife are buying the property. Uh, you and our daughter, you're going to be living in the guest house uh, just a few feet away from the main house. And of course, when I hear this, I don't hear, wow, this is an amazing experience. I'm hearing, wow, living next door to the in-laws, a dream come true. <laughs> you're living in the flush prosperity of the modern era. Back then, things were tougher for newlyweds. Come on. Well, let me tell you, living next door to your in-laws is definitely living in such a way that when the call comes, it's not going to be hard to walk away. <laughs> that is true. <clears throat> That's what's going to happen 10 years later. All right, let's see. <laughs> so during the 10 years we lived in that lovely family setting, my wife and I would say almost every day, we had better enjoy this because we aren't going to be here long. A call came from the Church Commissioner of Education. I think what they were really saying was, we can't wait what? to get out of here. I think what they were really saying every day is, we can't wait to get out of here. <laughs> the warning given by President Kimball to be able to walk away easily became a reality. It was a call to leave what seemed an idyllic family situation to serve in an assignment in a place that I knew nothing about. Our family was ready to leave that blessed time and place because a prophet in a holy temple, a place of revelation, saw a future event for which we then were prepared. Okay. So it's a very nice story. I think it's interesting about this idea of the vision of the place and then coming there and then seeing it. It's kind of like a Hallmark movie. Mm -hmm. But really, honestly, isn't this the sort of advice that would be given to any up-and-comer when he's going to the temple to get married? Uh, I don't know. Walk away easy. It's, when he said it, it struck me as an unusual thing to tell a married couple to walk away easily yeah but live somebody so that, live so that when the call comes you can walk yeah. away easily somebody pointed out that uh his aunt camilla eyring married spencer w kimball so he was actually the prophet's nephew <laughs> <laughs> okay that makes it a little easier to understand <laughs> So it's like, of course, and he's like, oh, I'm going to live this idyllic family setting where I don't have to pay rent, the house is provided for me, and instead I'm going to go into church service where my whole career is laid out ahead of me, and as long as I say and do the right things and be a company man, then I'm basically I'm set. Wait a second. Uh, hold it, hold it, hold it. 
Now, are, are are you saying that his 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 wife was the daughter? No, no. no. So, so we have to look at the family tree. His look at the family his, tree. His father's sister Camilla Iring. Yeah, I'm going to put this up here. His father's sister Camilla Iring married Spencer W. Kimball, making Henry B. the nephew of Kimball, who was the twelfth president of the church. This is from Wikipedia. Okay, so definitely nepotism, <clears throat> which, by the way, comes from the word meaning nephew. Oh well, nephewtism is yep, what he's got going on. <laughs> that's where you get the nep from nephew. True story. Uh, all right. <clears throat> okay. Uh, wow. So, uh, so that's really, really, really. Thank you for that insight. I appreciate that. You got some great listeners to your show. Uh, Can we get? You're the, the one. They're coming here to see you. So I don't know what the deal is. Okay. So what timestamp now? Seven point zero eight. Because this is really interesting. There's a theme in this general conference. You know how they talk about how there are themes that come together and the Lord works to have people talk about similar things so that different themes uh, appear from mm-hmm. conference. One of the themes is to take things that are historically miraculous in the church and dumb them down to make them not miraculous at all, but still pretend like they're miraculous. And here he talks about seeing the Savior in the temple. Okay. It's like that, that cruise thing. It's like a cruise, only there's no ocean. You don't go anywhere. It's like a miraculous vision, only there's no miracle and no vision. And, and Jesus never shows up. Yes. Right. So he's actually going to quote scripture here, I believe. Yes, he's going to quote scripture. And then uh, it's going to talk about seeing Jesus in the temple. And then he's going to quote President Russell and Nelson saying, yeah, it says see, but really, no, nah, you're not going to see anything. All right, let's see. Yay. And my presence shall be there for I will come into it and all the pure in heart that shall come into it shall see God but if it be defiled I will not come into it and my glory shall not be there for I will not come into unholy temples President Russell M. Nelson made clear for us that we can see the Savior in the temple in the sense that he becomes no longer unknown to us. President Nelson said this, open quote, we understand him, we comprehend his work and his glory, and we begin to feel the infinite impact of his matchless life. Okay, can you stop there? What? He actually puts the word see in quotes marks can you see that yes if you go to the church website and look at this talk the word c is in quotes which you do when you're saying it's not really this word but we're gonna you know let's redefine it here so they're redefining this is the same issue that caused a bunch of members to leave the church early on when one of the the three witnesses said that you know i saw it with my spiritual eyes and they're like what we thought you literally saw it and they're like no it's my spiritual eyes. then later it's like no no no, i saw it just like i see this pencil <laughs> this is i didn't pick up on this really well, I'm glad, no. I'm glad that uh, that we're finding this. Yeah, President Russell Nelson made clear for us that we can see the Savior in the temple in the sense that he becomes no longer unknown to us. What? So he becomes no longer unknown to us, and that means we see him in the same way that the scripture I just quoted, and all the pure in heart that shall come into it shall see God means. Wow. So now seeing the Savior in the temple is being dumbed down to mean only that it becomes no longer unknown to us in some sort of mystical, spiritualized way. And now if you play the tape again, he's going to say the same thing in a different way. 
This just means that whenever anyone asks the brethren, "Did you do you see Christ in the temple?" Yes, we do. But some things are too sacred that we don't want to give you our secret, private definition of see, so that uh, you know that it's not really what you think. Yeah, and the really uh, funny thing is that in the entire cast of characters, the dramatis personae in the endowment, there's no Jesus. Nobody sees Jesus in the temple because he's not there. He's not a character. Hold on, isn't he one of the beardy heads that looks the same? No. Yeah, there's Elohim, and then there's the voice of, come, Michael, let's go down. And, yes. and then that, okay, then the, I remember, then, then, I, then I remember there's the beardy head and the other beardy head. There's two beardy heads that show beard, white guys with white beards and glowing white robes, and then the Peter, James, and Johns, they return and report, they go back and forth, and there's those marble columns and the thing. You know, I'm stuck in the, in the, the era before the new videos, but... I'm there sure. Is. Jehovah. Jehovah. Yeah. Jehovah's not Jesus. What? what? Jehovah became Jesus around 1900. Before that, Jehovah was a name for God. He wasn't Jesus. And I'm talking about in Mormonism, not historically. <laughs> historically, wait, within wait. Mormonism. What? Who, who was this Jehovah guy before that? I thought that was Jesus. I thought that was the whole thing about Mormonism. No, no. Jehovah is another name for God. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of time for this. I, I All right, sorry. Elsewhere. No, it's okay. It's okay. I'm not trying to uh, put you off. But if you look at section 109, the dedicatory prayer for the Kirtland Temple, Jehovah is addressed in the prayer in such a way that it's very clear it's not Jesus. Okay, Jehovah that, is another name is for God. Lectures on Faith probably does something similar to that. I'm not sure that it does. Because he addresses the Godhead. Is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, that, that's very interesting, and clearly it's something. It's a, it's a, a gap in my own knowledge of it. But let's continue, as I don't want to derail the conversation. Set us up again, because I did derail it. Okay, we're talking about seeing the Savior, by which yes. I mean not seeing the Savior, in the temple. And now he goes on to say the same thing in a different way. If you'll hit the play button where it was. Oh, it's quad. If you or I should go to the temple insufficiently pure, we would not be able to see by the power of the Holy Ghost the spiritual teaching about the Savior that we can receive in the temple. There you go. Oh, my God. You see, he's so, doing it again. If you're not sufficiently pure, you won't be able to see the spiritual teaching about the Savior <laughs> that we can receive in the temple. Yeah, it's not about seeing the Savior. It's seeing the spiritual teaching of the Savior. Okay, well, I under, I get your point about that. But for me, anytime these leaders talk about sufficiently pure, they're just appealing right back for that demand for perfectionism that gets people in the cycle of, you know, feeling perpetually inadequate because they're insufficiently pure. You go to the temple, you don't, because you don't know about this weird definition of seeing. You go to the temple, you're expecting to have this miraculous experience. You don't have it. And so you look, I must not have been worthy enough. I guess I'll have to do better. I'll have to do more. And, and you just, oh, I just, anyway, that gets my goat. <laughs> well, he's going to go on in the similar vein in the next paragraph which I'd like you to play but notice how he emphasizes the fact that hope joy and optimism throughout our lives are available only only through accepting the ordinances of the temple when we are worthy to receive such teaching there can grow through our temple experience hope joy and optimism throughout our lives that hope, joy, and optimism are available only 
through accepting the ordinances performed in holy temples. Now get this last line. It is, the t it is in the temple we can receive the assurance of loving family connections that will continue after death and last for eternity. Okay, so how do we get that hope, joy, and optimism throughout our lives? Through the ordinances performed in holy temples. What are one of the ordinances performed in the holy temples? Eternal marriage. He follows it up in the same paragraph. It is in the temple that we can receive the assurance of loving family connections that will continue, that will continue after death and last for eternity. That's the only way to have the hope, joy, and optimism. Okay? Yeah. It seems a strange message to give right after Elder Gong has told us how temple marriage is not important as far as our standing before the Lord. You see how uh, President Eyring's talk, immediately after Elder Gong's talk, completely contradicts what Elder Gong says and goes back to the standard traditional Orthodox LDS narrative. Yeah. What one apostle gives in general conference, another takes away. Well, at least this uh, does show that they're truthful when they say that we don't actually have everybody submit their talks and then we review them and make sure there's no contradictions. You know, I sometimes wonder if they could even tell these contradictions. Maybe they uh, can. Maybe, they, maybe they're really, really uh, sharp. But, you know, I'm not really seeing a lot of evidence of that in what gets produced. Can you go to timestamp 1015? Talk about, talking about things that apostles... You know, these guys are prophets, seers, and revelators. We don't only have one. we got 15 of them. And yet mm -hmm. it's amazing to me how often in general conference I will hear them talk about things that they don't know. And they'll just tell the audience, hey, we don't know this. Of the temple. Now, we don't know the details of family connections in the spirit world or what may come after we are resurrected. Stop the tape. What are you saying, President Irene? What do you mean? You don't know the details of family connections in the spirit world? Isn't that kind of important? And you don't know what may come after we are resurrected? This seems like a real, real big gap in knowledge. And uh, I think that what he's saying, trying to be charitable, it's unlike me, but trying to be charitable, <laughs> I think what he's trying to say is, look, we got no clue about what we seal in the temple and how it's going to be sealed and whether it's going to be sealed in the hereafter in the spirit world or after the resurrection we got no idea it's kind of like the marines kill them all that god sort them out that's sort yes. of what the lds church does in the temple right you baptize everybody you seal everybody you marry everybody and god can sort it out we've done our job okay which really is a strange thing because it's like that's a it's a desperation move it's what you do when you have no idea you have no revelation you have no special understanding we're just gonna go ahead and do it all this way and God can figure it out later and he can confirm the ones he wants and he can break the ones he doesn't want, but we did our job. Your thoughts? Well, I, I agree. I think there's so many messy things in the history around ceilings that they kind of have to say this because it's a, it's a get out of jail free card when people are like, well, why was Joseph Smith sealing himself to other men and other men's wives and the wives of other men and what's up with this polygamy thing? Like People are going to come to these questions and if, if they're trying to make a cohesive, internally consistent gospel principle that's you know clear and easy to understand, it's not going to work. But if they say, well, we don't know the details of family connections and spirit worlds, so that's that you just plaster that all over all those doubts and questions and it just makes them all good. 
And so that's you know a solution. Now the other side of that is that if you don't know all the details of family connections in the spirit world, then upon what basis do you draw a hard line at things like gay marriage or things like that? Because if you don't know, then there's room for a little bit of theological, uh, doctrinal, um, what is essentially going to have to be creativity to be more inclusive and encompassing of people who want to have a family paradigm in the church. You're right. Based, perspectives. On it, based on the same explanation that he's giving, why not just seal everybody and let God sort it out? You're already yeah. doing it. You're admittedly doing that in heterosexual relationships. Well, why not do it in the homosexual relationship as well? God will figure it out. Yeah, and if and if an apostle can give an apostolic seal an apostolic blessing on an entire crowd of people, why couldn't they just do that once in the temple and then use the temples for you know wide open places for everyone to go and to connect with the divine in their own way? But well, that is a that's me. That, that is a, that is a question that his daughter asked, and that brings us to our last story in the last talk in the last uh, well in the first session. Sorry, of general conference. But we're almost done. But here's where he talks about his daughter in the temple getting baptized for the dead and baptized for the dead and baptized for the dead over and over because she's the only one there. And it's an interesting story in that basically what it illustrates to me is the idea of absolute um, sacrifice, obedience, um, giving everything we've got, even when it's maybe potentially not healthy. He talks about him being worried for his daughter that she's being done so many times because she's the only one there, but she keeps saying, yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. And um, then he frames this as a really good thing. The fact that she's so uh, subservient voluntarily to the demands of the church and the temple upon her. All right. That's 1225. Do you have that? Yep. I got it queued up. I have seen the power of that experience change the life of a young person. Years ago, I went with a daughter to a temple in the late afternoon. She was the last to serve as proxy in the baptistry. My daughter was asked if she could stay longer to complete the ordinances for all of the people whose names were prepared. She said, yes. I watched as my little daughter stepped into the baptismal font. The baptisms began. My daughter had water streaming down her face each time she was lifted out of the water. She was asked again and again, can you do more? Each time she said yes. As a concerned father, I began to hope that she might be excused from doing more. But I remember still her firmness when she was asked if she could do more. And she said, a determined little voice, yes. She stayed until the last person on the list that day had received the blessing of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. When I walked out of the temple with her that night, I wondered at what I had seen. A child had been lifted and changed before my eyes by serving the Lord in his house. I still remember the feeling of light and peace as we walked together from the temple. Years have passed. She is still saying yes to the question from the Lord if she will do more for him when it is very hard. That is what temple service can do. 
to change and lift us. What are your thoughts about that, Jonathan? I'm interested in hearing. Yeah, I, I mean, when you leave Mormonism and you open your ears to listen to the stories of other people who relate their own personal experiences from it, you come away quickly realizing that women have a completely different story to tell than men. And the story that they tell frequently is related exactly to this, and that is that they have so much that is already asked of them in home by nature of the domestic character of a woman's existence in the in the church where you've got to continually produce babies and children and take care of them and take care of the home and you're the one that's the homemaker and you're you know there's all of these things that are demands on your time and then on top of that you know got church callings where you've got to go and do this or that and 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 there's so many meetings to prepare for and there's just so many things and there's never a moment for yourself and even the idea that you would take a moment for yourself is is seen as a form of of selfishness and so when they finally step out and let go of that, they see the size of that huge weight that was on their shoulder and they start to realize that the reason that they had constant senses of depression and overwhelming dread and hopelessness, all these things was because of all those demands. But he's modeling now in this story that especially when things seem hard and when you seem overwhelmed, it is incumbent upon you to say yes to more. When the, when the bishop or the brethren come to you and say, we need more from you, when your husband says they need more from you, if you are the good person, if you're the righteous daughter of God, you are going to say yes, and that will be a testament to your submission and devotion to the church. And it's, it's you know, it, they call it toxic perfectionism because it's tied in with this. If you don't do everything that they say you're supposed to be able to do, then you feel bad about yourself. And that those feelings of, of depression and anxiety and dread build and they build and you get, you know, people dependent on antidepressants, you know, people suicidal, people who just, you know, have lost what should be a love for life and a love for their existence because of this. But they're told that their feelings of those difficulties are now part of, you know, they're not doing enough. And if they just do more, then it'll get better. It's that the over the, you know, in the horizon, that goodness. Anyway, so this is just, this is the poison that you know seeps from the mouths of these general authorities into the minds and hearts of the members so then now that becomes their story and i just feel this coming through that and men have their own cycle of toxic perfectionism and always having to say yes as well when they come in but um but you know the story is of different flavors with men and women coming out of the church but this is the stuff that makes it can I tell it? Can I tell you how it impacts me? And this is this is a very small thing compared to what you've talked about, compared to what President Irene's talked about. But I think you'll get what I'm saying: is that I have graduated from Mormonism a number of years ago, and I have not been uh, observant in Mormonism and doing all the programs. It's been years, but I will tell you still that twelve times a year. When the end of the month rolls around and I see it's the last day of month of the month, I actually breathe a sigh of relief because I am so glad that I don't have to worry about reporting my home teaching. <laughs> oh man, I remember that. You know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. I was like, oh, get that call from the elders corn president. Brother Streeter, did you do your home teaching? No, I mean I'm busy. I'm I'm I, I don't say that. I'm like no. Just, oh, next time I'll get them. 
That's what, you know, I had, I had some... Res- everybody else does. That's what I do. They can check. But they don't. <laughs> They're not going to check any more than you're going to do your own teaching. You were lying in your home teaching reports? Who's going to know? No, actually, I didn't. I was the best home teacher ever. You but did the I home became, teaching. As I became less faithful, I actually became a better home teacher. Well, probably, because then you're like, yeah, we don't have to do a lesson, but here are some great cookies. No, the... um. That, that, that I actually felt a twinge of anger, kind of like, well, I had to put up with this crap, so they should have to as well. Whenever I think Oaks came out first and said, you know, home teaching can just be a phone call or a text, you know, as long as you're checking up on them. There was like a leaked conference where he was like, that counts. And I was like, what? That counts? I could have done my home teaching the whole time. Well, I know you because, And that's the whole but then, this is not this is not the church suddenly lowering its standards so people what it is is this is what people are actually doing and calling it home teaching. So now the leadership is saying, okay, well, we'll just bring home teaching down to this so that it's uh, everybody can get an A. It's yeah. like lowering the standards so that everybody can get a passing grade. And all of a sudden the school is doing so wonderfully now in academics all of a sudden. And the church is doing so much better in its home teaching as long as you just lower the bar. Well, and that you know that's going on because when they changed it to ministering, they said this is a higher form of service, which directly speaks to the fact that it's it's actually less. It was that lower, you have to lower, do. lower, yeah, because you yeah. have to do text messages. And I said the difference between home teaching and and ministering program is that now I I I can wait till the end of the quarter to do all my home teaching instead of just the end of the month. Yeah, you, that's true too. You don't have to report quarterly. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know. You know, the, the whole idea of home teaching is actually really n- nice if it's not infused with all this religious stuff. And, well, I don't know. There's a little bit of insincerity about it. Like, I want to have it's totally opportunities. that you're assigned. That's the problem. I know. It's a fake friend. Hey, who's your... Did you check on your fake friends this month? Yeah, they really enjoyed it. friends are doing in their home so we can keep tabs on them. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it all. Yeah. You're ambivalent. No. Okay, is is that it? Is that it for uh, Henry Irene, or is there more? All right. Well, that was it for the the Saturday morning session of General Conference, April two thousand. Oh no. Twenty one. What? What? No, we got we got to get that last. We got to get that last quote. We got to get that last quote. Hold on. We were done. No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. This is the General Conference that will not end. Oh, it goes on and on, my friends. Yeah, no, no, here we go. We're going to do this last quote because it is that important. You think because, so? Yeah, well, it is. Because it's it's an absolute statement. Okay, because it, it's also the opposite of what Elder Gong said, right? Exactly. I, okay. Exactly. I have it here in yellow highlight right here on my screen. I know. Here we go. While I am young, this is my sacred duty. I bear solemn testimony that we are children of a loving Heavenly Father. He chose His beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior and Redeemer. And here it is. The only way to return to live with them and with our family is through the ordinances of the Holy Temple. Period. There it is. Period, yeah. The only way to return to live with them and to live with God is through the ordinances of the Holy Temple, which require marriage. You know, if you go into the endowment, the endowment includes a marriage relationship. Yeah, he says the only way to return to live with them and with our family. 
yeah. through the ordinances of the Holy Temple. Sorry, Elder Gong, but you are a junior apostle, and this is why. Yeah. Okay. Well, once again, we've come to the end uh, of a general conference breakdown. Uh, sometimes we take calls, but I think we've got to make this consumable in a reasonable amount of time. So I've already spoken far too much in this episode. I will give you the last word. What do you have for us, Radio Free Mormon? Well, hopefully we can do this uh, next week. Um, our goal is to try and put them out before next general conference rolls around. And it's been a challenge that we haven't succeeded in, in doing yet. I yeah. think we got two, two sessions from the prior general conference before this last general conference got here. And uh, we're getting an early start now while it's still fresh on everybody's mind. And um, I have a few conflicts coming up on Fridays. That's generally when we, that's generally when we record. But uh, we'll get it done. We, we are committed to this. All right. Let's do it. Okay, until next time, this is Talk on Things and Stuff.